Please note, this episode contains some strong language. Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. Sandy Thompson, welcome to The Bra and the Brave. Hello, it's lovely to be here after all this time. I've heard so many of them as well. <laughs> I know, that's totally my folks. Like we've just not I've just not made it happen. And then last week we were about to make it happen, and I was like, not quite yet. So we're here. So um, I very much appreciate it. And I know that you're an incredibly busy human. So <laughs> it's always good to have a chat though. <laughs> it's so funny because like we don't spend time in real life together. Yeah. That is I do see you on a regular basis. I yeah, and I feel like, especially if you work in theatre, you get the vibe off of somebody really quickly. Where you go, oh, one of ours. You know what I mean? Like, there's a definite. Oh no, us. <laughs> yeah, definitely a one of us. One of us. <laughs> um, and I, you know, and you kind of get that. You know, even in like a, a more corporate context, like you know, you kind of get that off of you immediately. But I'm just like, yeah, okay, that's somebody who moves for a living and works with groups of people for a living. And that's like a really particular, do you know what I mean? Like that just gives somebody a very particular vibe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always enjoyed your vibe right from the get-go. So um, although we haven't worked together in the theatre capacity, I've uh, yes. very, much, very much got the vibe from you, Sandy, from, from the get-go. Because <laughs> uh, I guess I should preface this with, we both work with Creative Entrepreneurs Club, so that's how we met. Yeah. Um, but obviously your reputation precedes you, so I knew yeah. about your work. Um, As does yours. I'm sure that, like, Chris and Hannah have both mentioned you before I met you. You know, like, I feel like we're in a Venn diagram where there's, like, a bit of overlap, like, in the middle, where we definitely should have bumped into each other at some point. I know, that is, that's so true, actually. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, as much as, like, I am very much hopeful that the theatre and arts landscape and isn't cliquey and like constantly welcome yeah. new people like you yeah. do quite often tend to meet the same faces or yes. you're like oh I know so I mean I guess it's that seven degrees separated like everybody's connected yeah. so we're all, yeah. so we're all related to Kevin Bacon yes <laughs> a fact that I've used almost certainly at some point in my life <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah so I was just thinking about oh, like, there's all the questions all the questions but um stories are obviously yeah. very important to you yeah, um has that always been the case like growing up like where were you and yeah. were stories important to your your childhood yeah I guess there's a thing where and I do I often you know years and years of being in CEC means that you you learn to boil down what you do to like the essentials so whilst I'm a, a a writer and director for stage and screen. Actually, I often describe myself as a story engineer because actually a lot of the time I go in and I'm a dramaturg or I'm working on things and I'm an editor or I'm helping a corporate client and it's like, you have a story, you know, but literally engineering with stories. And it literally comes from the fact that my mum's family were a, a family of storytellers mm -hmm. and my dad's family were engineers. And I was like, and I, I absolutely look at it and I'm going, I'm using both these skills. You know, like I'm going in and like stripping stories down and like going under the bonnet and fixing things. So 
but yeah, there's definitely, I mean, I say to people frequently that I am like, I am the tallest and the quietest woman in my family. And everybody goes, no, you know, because I'm like five foot and a half. I'm very verbal. And I'm like, oh, trust me. <laughs> you know, I am, I am not the shortest and I am not the most verbal. And I have gotten so much mileage out of it, I guess, but my, particularly my grand's family uh, ran pubs. They all owned pubs. So it was brought up in pubs in the 70s. Okay. And my gran in particular told amazing story. And my gran was one of these matriarchs where, like, I don't think it's odd that I kind of expect to lead a room or be whatever, because I've been watching that since I was little. That's like my gran, my yeah. mum. There was just this thing of not only were they, like, the most important thing in the room, they also took on responsibility to make sure the room ran well. So, like, they could tell, you know, and often that was done through being a smart arse and a clever (laughs) turn of phrase or telling a story. And my nanny was an outrage because actually what my nanny was was a grade A liar. She just made things up. Like, she didn't, doing a Jeannie Dakers in our family means, did you just make that shit up so it sounds better? Like, that's what, are you you doing a Jeannie Dakers? Or is that a... And it's like, and the deal is in my family, you will back them to the hill in public while they tell the story, but you might pull them aside afterwards and be like, was that Jeannie Dakers? Like, what lie are we telling? So, so she just, <laughs> but she was an outrage. And what she had, she had a younger sister who lived over in Fife. And anytime Margaret came to stay, you would get different versions of the family stories. Margaret would be like, that's a load of shit. That's not how that happened. And, and, and you would get, you know, and this, and, but she was also like she would kick you under the table if you contradicted her. If she was telling a story where you'd been with her mm. and you contradicted her, she was, you know, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Good story. Yeah, it was absolutely. like my nanny's kind of dictum. It was just, you know, that was what she did. But she also did this thing, which looking back on it, I, f- I actually think is really amazing. And whilst it was hard to live up to for her, I think it's a really interesting choice that she made is that she would also do things just because they would make a good story. So, you know, travel to Egypt once when she was widowed, you know, I have a photo of her with like this huge snake round her neck. And I'm like, I can tell by your face that you're hating that, but you are pursuing the story. Yeah, that's one time when I went to Egypt. (laughs) Yeah, you know, like she just, and actually that's not a bad way to live your life. You know, like she was, she was widowed fairly early. Um, you know, she had had ill health when she was younger. And what ha- I remember my mother calling my grand when I was a kid, like we were off on a walk, I was about five, and my mum going, Christ, you are such a middle-aged delinquent. And it and, and she had this attitude of like, different rules for me. You know, let's go through this fence that we're not meant to be in and be like, well, there's signs and things. She's like, yeah, I'm a nice old lady. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna care. You know, so there was this absolute copper bottom belief that she could chat her way out of any bother uh-huh. that she got her way into. But outrage, you know, like there was just a whole set of things that were from like, I forget what it was. Queen Mother was coming to open the hospital and all the roads were shut. Mm-hmm. And my nanny decided to ignore the roadblocks with her shopping bike, with her <laughs> basket on the front. And the crowds are applauding. And my mum says, she's like, I was about 15. She said, I had my head in my hands going, this is so embarrassing. So embarrassing. And you can hear the crowds applauding my granny as she goes along. I love that. 
just <laughs> ahead of the security for the royal family. And that is just my that was my nanny over the back that was just like, where is the story and the notion that like a bit of devilment and like I was gonna say she's a pure messer. I'm enjoying Oh yeah, I'm there's a definite thing of Yeah, she was a messer. Like she was, you know, she had like a sense of mischief about her. And what she really strongly had as I grew up, you know, she I grew up I have a younger brother, but in reality, I grew up as one of six. There is a set of cousins and like wow. all my mum and her aunties all lived on the same street. And like you went okay. in and out of whoever's house was going to feed. Yes, like, you were literally a unit of six. Yes. And anybody that stopped off at Nanny's got sweeties and fed and, you know, like, and and, and as you were later on, cigarettes that you didn't tell your mother about. And, you know, <laughs> that sort of, you know, like she was very much, my, my Nanny was counterculture without being non-traditional in any way. But it, the thing is as well, it wasn't just, it wasn't just her. She, like, she had brothers, one of her brothers was a journalist. Again, my uncle loved just made stories up about the war. And they, and then he would forget, like he'd tell you these big serial stories. And the next night you'd be like, tell us about the guy that's hanging on the fence. And he would have forgotten what he had told you. You know, like he was just <laughs> making it up. You know, I think the other thing for my nanny is that she wasn't a singer. She didn't have much of a singing voice in a family who were all singers. So, so that was her like, she was like the MC, you know, she would Go she like kept a room running. Yes. Because anytime Nanny started a song, nobody could sing it in that key. Nobody knew where she was going with it. So <laughs> so she found the niche. She would do things like recitations that she called them. She would do she would do poems. She would do like comedy poems and things. I love it. Um, but some of it I think was just to do with the fact that it would have been unnatural for her to be in the room and not hold the floor. So like, and and being in a bar is a bit like being on stage. Like you have the punters, and then you have the people behind the bar who are up a little bit and sober and telling you what will or won't happen. So like a gift for like storytelling and stand up, especially when things had happened in the pub that maybe weren't funny, but finding a way to make them funny by the next night was like a a big thing, yeah, you know. Yeah. Gosh, like if walls could talk in that, oh, like, do okay. you know what I mean? Like all the stories that have been shared, like true or otherwise. Yeah, and this was the other thing was that if, so the other thing you used to do in my family was if you really wanted the truth, you went to my auntie Ella, who was my nanny's best friend. She was, she was from my granddad's side of the family right. and she was the truth teller where you would go, that thing she's saying. And she was like, well, that's not how I remember it. She was very <laughs> Diplomatic. And once or twice she told me family stories, but what she what Ella used to do was say, you're not allowed to talk about that till Abadie's dead. You gotta wait until everybody's died before you write that into one of the plays. You know, which I've done. I you know, damn devil bitches had sizable chunks of my family history in it when oh, I wrote yeah. it. But I did what I was told and I waited until everybody had died. That's <laughs> so I interesting. It. Actually, I was speaking to somebody yesterday who's right who's written a play and it is about their family from right, letters. Yeah. That yes. they've got from yep. correspondence from that time and mm -hmm. like she was saying the same thing like having to go back to family members and be like are you all right with us yes yeah and, and then yeah. can I embellish these stories for yes because you're purposes? telling it yeah you're for yeah. dramatic purposes you know and the thing is in my family and I don't have to do that because the story I got told had already been embellished <laughs> yeah. so you know what I mean like <laughs> Nobody knows how to drop a final line like my family. So there's a thing where you go, the work of fiction might already have been done. I'm not even sure which stories are real and which ones oh, aren't. But I think that also tells you a lot about a family. So yeah, there's definitely a thing where that was currency in our family. Yeah. And even my dad, 
who who again you know was the guy that sat at the back and made the drinks in the pub or in the kitchen or you know was would have a heart to heart with somebody when they were having a hard time but wasn't part of the kind of three ring circus yeah. that was my my mum's family um was a huge Tolkien fan so the other thing that happened was just I was read to as a kid I got read yeah. stories before bedtime frequently with my dad paraphrasing I can't believe we ever read the whole of the Lord of the Rings but I knew all of it before I could read so I think he must have like read us bits and then Uh paraphrased chunks of it so there was a bunch of different ways that like the notion that story was important not just that it was important but it was how you knew who people were it was how you knew if you belonged to, to to people and and the notion that that was some form of hospitality. You know, everybody knows that thing of, you know, you hear it maybe more in Glasgow or more in Ireland, but the notion of like, when you're too tired to like, I've got no chat, I'm so tired. I've got no chat. And it's the (laughs) ultimate insult. You know, like it's the ultimate, like, I'm such a failure as a human being. I've just, I've got no, I've got no. Nothing to offer. I've got, I haven't got anything to offer. Just now, and and certainly when I was at the height of when Poor Boy was at the height of its touring and stuff, it's interesting now that I'm looking back on those, you know, as I was kind of reviewing my career for this thing I was doing a couple of weeks ago, mm. and and recognizing that in myself that that I would look at all these amazing folks and go, that was great being in Brazil. I'm so t- I was so tired. I don't remember getting there, or I was so t- you know, and there was a lot of it that was like I'm so knackered here. I'm so knackered here. But the actual exhaustion comes from knowing that you need to do another hour when you get someplace, when you're on your knees, because that exchange of stories, especially when you're Mm -hmm. traveling or if you're touring and you're staying with people who are opening their homes to you, that is the currency. You know, like that is And you're the exciting person. Do you know what I mean? You're involved in theater. It's like, you know, it's like like somebody from the theater is coming to love me. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, you're expected to entertain even when you're on the stage. Although the other thing that I find in more cultures than I would realize, so we've done this, you know, I say this has been different places, is that there is almost always somebody else in the house that's going, that's what I've got to offer you as well. Like the amount of times that I have sat down with, I don't know, you know, Highland and Island ministers who are like, have a whiskey while I tell you what happened in church today. You know, have like, it. I think, it, I used to think it was a very Scottish thing. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, no, it's a very people thing. Yeah. It's just yeah, people actually... love to, to, to tell you about themselves. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Even if they don't think they're very good at it or they're like oh I've got no chat I mean I hear that all the time but I ask people to come on this podcast and they're like yes. are you asking me I've got nothing to say and I'm like just do me just do me and we're like an hour in they're still blathering and I'm like what was that yeah. you said <laughs> yeah 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 and that's a real skill I mean I think that's one of the things I admire about what you do that like that was part of the training in my family was how to keep the ball bouncing and and how like you know that it that whilst hogging the floor was something you were allowed to do for some of the time part of the deal was you're responsible for everybody in the room so have you drawn everybody out and has everybody had a say and has everybody had a chance to in my family sing like a lot of singing parties Mm. lots of you know that sort of thing it's no one ever gets comfort zone in it like for that kind of thing as well like you'll know that from like leading workshops or whatever when you're not necessarily with professionals it's like reading the room and going like what's everybody comfortable doing here or like where where's the starting block for this and maybe they'll get a bit more gallus as we go along but like who is the first person that's going to put their hand up and volunteer for something and who's be like i'll just like your dad quite happy to be in the background and just 
watching yes. everything and listening and paying attention. What and an that, education, though, you got. Like, I'm so I mean, it was, the thing was, you know, you're sitting on somebody's knee with somebody smoking a cigarette over your head, age five, in your nighty because you've been pulled out your bed to sing, you know, and everybody else is food, everybody else is drunk. So the other thing that you're watching is it's all a little clearer because the adults aren't hiding if they're enthusiastic or if they're in a huff with somebody or if they're, yes. do you know what I mean? So it was a bit like, you know, my my young childhood was like being surrounded by emotional giants because there was a lot of drink taken. I mean, this is the 70s as well. You know, like there is a lot of drink taken. You know, I'm, I, let's say you, you were used to getting hauled, uh, literally hauled out your sleep. Come and sing for folk. Come and, you know, come and come What was and your party it. piece, Andy? I'm interested oh, to know about it. God, I had so many different party pieces. <laughs> my, I have a cousin, Arlene, who also has a stonking voice, who is three months younger than me. So it was often, you need, we used to do Baby It's Cold Outside. Yes. Like my first party piece was like, Baby It's Cold Outside <laughs> and Billy Don't Be a Hero. Oh, I... Um, which are all quite, you know, which was, I think, to do with whatever records I was given for my dance set. Like, we would get stuff. And then I sang a lot of Dusty Springfield. My mum was a torch song singer. So, you know, I I sang 24 Hours for Tulsa from Tulsa and anyone who had a harp. Oh, you know, like, these were, like, classics. great big, you know. Um, so, yeah, lots of 60s classics, you know, lots of 60s classics. Lots of things from musicals. My mum was in musicals my whole life. My mum is, is like, my mum has proper, proper pipes. So um, so for years and years, she was either doing solo concerts or things with orchestras or she was in musical stuff. Aye. So there was also a thing where, you know, by the time we were very young when we saw Rocky Horror, like, mm. I think I was like 10 when I saw Rocky Horror. Like, we what the hell is this? <laughs> Which I think says a great deal about how much my mum likes camp, but also doesn't, you know... Boomer parents didn't care about the rules. Nobody cared what you watched, you know. But if the music is good, it gets a pass anyway. Yes, you know. So been educated. I, yeah, you know. So there's a definite eye of whatever age I was when that was on. I remember what? one of my uncles being in the room and going, "Don't show your cousin Danny this. He's not ready for this." You know, like it's <laughs> not. And us having, I mean, being like, "Why? Why is it weird?" And I'm being like, "I'm going to let your mother explain." You know, like it just, yeah. And, it, you know, you don't realise what an aberration things like that were, but the reality was my mum just... <laughs> I remember saying to my mother, she she lived in a small village just along the end, like same village as me, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the village. And it was freezing cold one night, and I remember saying to her, have you got a scarf that I can wear to walk back to my house? You know, she's right on the edge of a cliff. It's, you know, cold, windy, there's no streetlights. And she was like, I don't, but I've got a boa. And of I was like, that just sums up my mum... <laughs> that is a bit like my mum in the sense like you know if you're like looking for like any sort of Halloween costume or you're going yes. to like a dress yeah. up party she's probably got it in a drawer somewhere yeah. like, yeah. have yeah. you got <laughs> do you do you have like you know whatever that yeah that might be anything that had sequins or feathers on it was, there, was a, there was a lot of that there was a lot of that way did, did you take the feather boy or did you just brave the coat I did no I'm allergic to feathers she never remembers oh. But there's not, I was like, never mind, I'll just head off, you know, I, I, in my slightly more sensible clothes, will just head off. But yeah, there's a definite, she has like a whole room for this sparkly stuff that she like, separate from her other bit. So there was a, there was degrees of, you know what I mean, like that things were done semi-professionally, things were done in public, things were done in family context. We kind of yeah. went up and down the gears quite a lot. But all of the currency was the same and the business of having to get up and riff about something. Hey. 
while ensuring that it was entertaining was, you know, you look at that now, I see my, my creative partner did improv training in America. It doesn't seem any different from what I went through in my childhood. <laughs> You're like, been there, you done it, I mean? got the t-shirt. Yeah, you know. <laughs> I just didn't get so a certificate at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think that was, you know, I think that was a big part of, like, there was never any doubt. I mean, I think probably even in a family of storytellers, I was the one that wrote things. So... You know, I wrote my first play when I was, and directed it when I was 10. Oh, my word. So one of the teachers, you know, if you're lucky and you get one of those teachers. Oh, yeah. They're like, like ah, you can. Of course you can. Ah, you can. You know, there wasn't Mrs. Vujic, and Vujic. You know, and she was a game changer because, you know, looking back, if you look at the timeline, I she, she there must have been a theatre and education company had visited. I remember being pulled up to be a kid in a schoolroom, water babies or something, you know. And as soon as they left, I was like, I could do that, (laughs) you know. And and as a a teacher, she was like, yeah, you could. Yeah, you could totally do that. You should sit down and think about that. So by the next school year, I've written something and I'm asking for time off. She's hassling people to give me time off so that I can go to the music huts and direct things. And and that was kind of it, you know, that was like... That, you know, I then did one every year through school. Like, what is it that Sandy's writing and directing this year? You know, like, it just became a thing. Because it was quite a small school and that was quite an unusual thing for people to do. And at that point, there was a bit of wiggle room in the curriculum. So if somebody was like, can I get a day with my pals to, like, go off and get this ready? And they'd be like, aye, yeah, that'll be fine, you know, so... gosh, more of that, like, nurturing that, like, and just, like, giving the space and the freedom to, like... yes figure yeah. it out and I mean like... looking at it now you know it's a tiny little primary school in a tiny wee town in the arse end of nowhere but the the notion of somebody being like yeah you know free some space up and yeah they don't need to do flow charts today like let them go in the, and find us you know and people just gave me the stuff I needed to be able to do it. and again with my family it wasn't difficult to run around and go I'm doing a thing about space I need a spaceship you know and my dad would be like what if we stuck all these hula hoops together and we'd like help yes. me engineer, you know, so <laughs> no accident that I became a set and prop maker at one point as well. Cause just like his, him, his favorite thing was when you arrived and went, I've got to make a caterpillar that 20 kids can get in and it needs to glow in the dark. And he'd be like, nice. Let's sit yeah, down and work out. <laughs> so it seems to me that it was just a natural, well, it was a given that you were always going mm. to end up working in theater and the arts but was it just a natural progression then from writing and yeah. directing those plays to this is what I'm going to do as a... No, it, actually, that was a huge jump because I was from working class families where you you take a job where you make money. And my parents didn't know if they could tell. I got into drama college. They didn't know if they could afford to send me. And there was definitely a bit of... I had done the youth theatre with at Dundee Rep from about 14 to 17. And again, just lucky... You know, Alan Lydiard was a really charismatic director and he was doing things like Witch's Blood and stuff, you know, so he was doing big, big pieces and and was very open at the point where he was like, I'd like you to act. And I was like, I'd kind of like to be in charge. And initially, like the first year, and that was just, they should get a T-shirt from me. I'd kind of like to be in charge, thanks. You know, it's kind of like my T-shirt. You should totally, totally make them, I think. <laughs> the amount of people that would... Absolutely love to wear that t-shirt. That's like, I know. That's I know. a Sandy I Thompson quote. I love it. 
Yeah, yeah I kind of like to be in charge. And and initially what that meant was they made me the production manager because that was what you thought in charge was. And then because I knew him by the next year, I was like, no, what I mean is I want your job. I'd like to do your job, I think. Um, so I, I sh you know, I was shadowing professional directors when I was 17, but a lot of it was found by myself. And the note I went to college, partly you didn't get, there wasn't training to be a director. There wasn't, there weren't courses in the 80s that you could go to, to learn to be a director. So I went to be a production manager. I, I went and trained in design and stage management and production design. And I did that for, um, and again, the stage manager at the rep spoke to my folks about the fact that yes, this was a real job. Like she'll, she will work, like she'll make, she will make money, you know, and, and it's not the easiest job and it's freelancing and it's not the same as having a job job, but it's, a, a, thing. it's a thing. Uh -huh. But actually it was a big stumbling block for my family because this was simply how you were. So the notion of making it a career when really what you were meant to do was do it on the side was uh and people be like you know i want to just do stuff with your you know and again let's say i was a performer but i was always writing and you know like it was obviously all in my life but and i get this a lot even now like you get a taxi in glasgow and the guy says what you what do you do and you go i'm a i'm a theater i'm a writer and a director for theater and you go oh my youngest team is doing and it's always what their kids are doing or what you know so i think there is this thing where it raises expectations sometimes in people, but then the idea that you might then shift into that as a professional thing is a bit is a big jump, you yeah. know. So yeah, to formalize you know, like that. Yeah. yeah, you know. So I think there was a thing, and part of it again, if you if you look at the stories, finding the way to tell the story of it, just nobody nobody in my family had been a university. You know, nobody in my family, like my dad had got his city and gills. I think that was the biggest qualification anybody in my family had. My cousin Arlene and I are the first generation who are also going, we'd like to go on to a different type of education. So it was just like two, and it would mean we have to leave home. Mm. When you have a whole family where no divorces, everyone has kids. Like just the, the actual, I often say people like the actual pressure to get married out of school in small town Scotland when I grew up was absolutely enormous. Wow. And or to, you know, get a wee job until you get married to and then married. have kids, you know, like just huge, like really, really huge. So to a certain extent, and I didn't love college, like I, because I'm not a production designer and a stage manager, I'm a director, you know, so I, it was grand. I liked mm. being in London a lot of the time. Um, there was other things I didn't like about being in London, but it was the first of me being on my like being able to define who I was without this. Everybody knew my family. It was one of those things that I was leaving someplace where you could travel for miles in Scotland. You opened your mouth and someone would be like, oh, you're a McLean. And, and it, you know, and because pubs, all publicans seem to know each other, you know, like there was definitely a bit of it where they were like, where do you want to go? And I was like, far away. I want to go <laughs> far away. Nobody knows me. I want to go someplace that people don't know my mum. Like it just... <laughs> Let's say because she was a performer and she toured everywhere and stuff, it just seemed when I was 18, it felt like Violet blocked out the sun, you know, like it was just so some so there was a lot going on at the same time. Like right. there was a cutting of apron strings, there was moving somewhere else. And what I didn't realize until I got there was that there is a class system. Like I didn't know I was working class until I went to college. And all yeah. of a sudden I am surrounded by people 
whose parents have bought them a town flat so that they or are lending them the town flat yeah just didn't know I didn't know that and I didn't know that the way that I spoke wasn't currency I didn't know that a Scottish accent was considered uneducated. Wow. I didn't realise that running a room and making them laugh was considered considered attention-seeking behaviour. Like, attention-seeking behaviour in my family is saying that you don't feel like singing. <laughs> oh, come on. Jeez, how much clapping do you need? Bloody hell. You know, like, that's attention-seeking behaviour in my family. My cousin Adeline went through a period of being quite shy and she's like, our family are monsters. Nobody I'm ever... Not <laughs> oh come on don't be a prick don't be a prick like that that's attention seeking behavior in my family so there was a so it really was it was like sylvester the cat in the cartoon running in our wall was just i was like none of these things that i have are currency like none of these things that i've been taught are currency and there is definitely a you know the thing of uh, you know i'd quite like to be in charge of it thanks meant that you know, I was a decent stage manager. I was a decent producer. I'm good with my hands. You know, I was a decent designer. I was decent at things because I'm organized and because I can make things. But it was, I had spent my time thinking this was me moving into Jesus. I'm really doing this for real now. And it was none of those things. So when I you know, when I finished college, I worked and I worked all over, you know, I was a touring stage manager and things. And I could still feel that I was like, this is not the job that this isn't what I asked. This isn't what I'm after. Like, it's not. Yeah. But the other thing that was really key was there were no women directors. So there was nobody to look at. Maggie Kinloch running the buyer was the only woman running a theatre, I think, in Scotland at that point. There was no Gosh. one. I also hadn't realised I was a girl. Like, I actually got, you know what I mean? Like, by the time I'm 20, I'm like, oh, there's a there's a fucking sex gap here. There's a gender divide here. And people kept going, why don't you do youth theatre and things? I'm like, I'm not having kids. I'm not, like... Now, the thing is, actually, I ran a youth theatre for 15 years. In the end, I adore doing youth theatre. And I don't work with young people any differently than I work mm-hmm. with professional <laughs> you yep, know my process yep. is exactly the same if you're eight or if you've been working for 40 years my process doesn't change you know you're like you know that if you make your room safe enough and warm enough anybody is able to do so so it's just about establishing how do you get them to come out of their comfort zone to do stuff and and professional actors have that as well like there's my criteria as a professional director is off is very well broadcast you know I say to people we're looking for people who are both talented and lovely people, like being one is not enough. I'm not interested if you're only one of those. And I'm sorry, I've had to say no to lots of people uh-huh. who either just weren't quite going to keep up with the room, but were smashing, but just weren't going to keep up, mm-hmm. or who were very talented, but were assholes. And I'm just like, my room is a no asshole zone. Like, you don't get to wow. do that. But the other thing in my room is that I don't want people to bring the tricks that they already have. I don't want them to just come and bring the things that are safe. I'm like, if it fails, that's fine. Like, if it fails, we'll clap because it means you were doing something and you have no idea if it would work. So Aye, that's bravery. That's that's creativity, yeah, you know, isn't it? But the reality is that as a director, that's your job to make the room where that's possible. That's your job to make that promise and then stick to it. And I can completely understand that actors have heard that over and over, and then when they fail, it 
it tells against them the next time a job's going or what you know so I ended up having to evolve this very clear chat and very clear process to get people into my room so that they understood that that I the, my promise of that underwrites everything. It's like we mm. are going to be playful, and being playful sometimes means you bust the ball. It's not the end of the world. It's not a problem. Be playful, be, be generous, and then we'll find out where we're going. Do you know all of it? All of it's allowed, as Adrian um, Howell used to say. You know, it's all allowed. Yeah. So you know, the reality is that that comes from having had to deal with the much higher stakes of working with groups of. 11 year olds 12 year olds where if they get something wrong it's social death at school the next day you know like the stakes are so high when you're a kid and and you know being a teen is (laughs) you know between what's happening to your brain and what's happening to your body and certainly if you're a lassie you know the patriarchy's got you in its teeth and I there was definitely a thing that I did when I was I established in my head when I was like oh okay do you know in terms of agency once you're past toddler, there is nobody that seems to have less say-so agency or representation than a 14-year-old girl. And it's in my nature as, a, as somebody from an engineering background to go, right, we're going to fix that. So how are we going to fix that? <laughs> you know. So a lot of my work has been shaped by, by kind of following the creative pattern, you know, following the creative ideas that I'm interested in with this T-shirt on that goes, but I'm going to be in charge, thanks. You know, because that's, you know. And I think that was what I saw when I came out of college, and I did the touring and stuff and I was working with different companies. And what I constantly saw was women in assistant director roles, but who never got a go. And I was just like, I am nobody's assistant. Facilitating what some dude's after is the opposite of how I've lived my life. And it's really hard to, to like looking back on it now because feminism was a dirty word in the 80s. Like feminism was a dirty word in the 80s and 90s. So the point where you said you know I want to do that partly because I want to do it for myself but I also want to do it because women need in these roles people be like oh you know like there was a like there was a lot of resistance there's a reason I use Sandy and not Sandra or Alexandra and it was so they didn't know I was a girl when I got until I got in the room like if you wanted to be a stage manager and if I can get in the room I can get the job like I knew uh-huh. that as you know, like if you can get me in the room, the chances of me getting the job are high. Um, but I I realized after the first set of applications, I was like, okay. And there were women in production, there wasn't loads of them, but there was some. And I was like, okay, it's just gonna be easier for me if they don't know that I'm a girl. So so I I got I spent two or three years getting really smart about how to get into spaces. I love how and, that didn't discourage you though. I think like I love that tenacity, like, no, I'll just figure this out. Like that yes. didn't that didn't detail you. You didn't go back home with your tail between your legs. You were like, no, I'll just figure this out. This is fine. I think there's a thing where what you do is as you get older, you realize that what it did was it slowed you down because you have to take breaks because it's disheartening. You know, so there would be times where I would come back from a tour and just collapse at my folks' house for two weeks and be fizzing mad that I still wasn't being offered director jobs or whatever and nobody's offering at that point nobody's offering a directorship to somebody who's 21 22 I didn't know enough to set up my own company but my dad ran a company and I think that's the other thing that I saw my dad was a design engineer for heavy engineering for years and then when the oil boom started he he set up his own company with a a pal and they designed specific things that fixed things for subsea pipelines so one of the things that I think I was really lucky with was the thing of going, 
I can do this and be in, like, there's a way of making this where all of this bullshit from the rest of the world doesn't get in. I just have to make my own thing and work out how to do that. So initially, I think some of the things that, let's say my initial res resistance to the notion of doing work with youth and communities was because I could very much feel the kind of family pressure of going and call that enough and stop Aye. and yeah. stay home. And it's lovely to have a close family, but it also means that if you go home and you're knackered and a bit broken, they go, well, just stay. Don't go away and get in your like. No, I need to, you know, like, and it was, so it was really lonely. Like for a long time, I felt like I was, I was a unicorn in every room that I was in. And be then, the unicorn, I, be the, I mean, like, thank yeah. God you're the unicorn. Again, thank. at a point where that wasn't particularly like lauded or trendy, no. you know, <laughs> but there was definitely, there was definitely a, a, a thing. There was a couple of things that happened that made a difference. And one was when I'd been a teenager, when I'd been at school, I had read a lot of Liz Lockhead poetry. Like I had, I had read, I was one of these kids, I scored high enough, they wanted me to be prepaid. I wasn't willing to do that. I didn't want to wear a uniform. I'd led a walkout against wearing uniforms. And the compromise between like the furious like school teachers who are like, she has to be a prefect. That's what happens when they had to score like this was they offered me librarian. So I was like the school librarian in fourth and fifth year. Thank you. And it meant that I just sat every lunchtime reading Liz Lockhead stuff to the gubbies and preaching feminism at them. You know, like it just, that was, I, I had like this lunch club that I ran. Anyway, out of, out of college, my third job was with a company called Winged Horse and it was one of Liz Lockhead's Moliere Scots language adaptations. And she was in rehearsal and I felt like I was meeting the fucking Beatles. I was just like, I can't remember phoning my mum and going, Liz Lockhead's coming. Like, I was so excited. <laughs> and I was a DSM. I was on the book. So I'm sitting next to her as things are getting changed or altered or shifted and ask, I'm like, so if we shift it to that, does that mean the rhythm's off on that line? I don't, and she let, so I remember during that rehearsal period, a woman that I idolised looking me in the eye and she's going, you're a director. <laughs> and I was like, I know. <laughs> I thought so, but no one had quite, do you know what I mean? Huh. Well, Liz Lockhead <laughs> tells you, you're like, yes, I am. That's Thank it. You, you know, I was just like, look, God tell me I was a director. <laughs> do you know? Yes. I'm sure she doesn't even remember, but she was just like, you're not a near fence, but you're not a DSM. Wow. And I was like, you know, and, and I had heard this at college as well. I had a couple of lecturers mm -hmm. at college, a couple of, not lecturers, directors that I had DSM'd for who were like, I don't think your production like, and one in particular, Jeff, um, who had roared and laughed and went, you're not allowed to have an opinion on this. I'm like, but it's blatantly wrong, Jeff. Like, it's like, blatant. and he was just like, this is not can't what stage management, this isn't what stage management do. And I was like, well, I can't help it if I can see that it's wrong. You know, like, it's not. so there had been a bit of encouragement. But again, let's say from people who were just very different from me, very posh, mm -hmm. very from down south, very West End people who had said, you know, I, I, I don't think production is where your heart is. I, I think you're probably a, a creative. And I'm like, that's fine for you with like your no need for no money and your Aye. mercy. None of that, you know, that doesn't. That's even it. more messed up in it because you're like, I know it, you're saying it. But yes. somehow it's no, no, how, how it's how am I to get there? Yeah, how Aye. am I oh, to get there? That's like frustration on another level. Yeah. 
that, yes, you know, so there is, so to hear it from someone who was a Scottish writer and performer who had always reminded me of my gran, like that thing of like getting up the stuff that she did during Tickly Mints, and I'm like, this is literally the shit that Nanny does. You know, so there was like a definite recognition, you know, there was a definite thing. I, it, it was just a thing that I needed in my backpack for the next three years where people kept still saying it wasn't. And me going, no, it is. Liz Lockhead told me this. You know, like there was just... <laughs> that should know. also be in a T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. You know, Liz Lockhead told me this is fine. You know, that could be on the back of the T-shirt. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to be in charge. Liz Lockhead said it was fine. You know, and I... I mean, that's rules for life, right? Um, But I, I, you know, I think the thing that was interesting was that came from, and and I remember her roaring and laughing. She was like, what did you read at the school? You know, what were you good at English? I was like, I was ducks for English. And she's like, "Mm, what did you read at the school? And I'm like, you, I read you. And she's like, oh, okay, that ages me. Right, okay, wild, wild, you know. But she was very good with me. You know, now I'm still doing all the stage, you know, I'm still DSMing, I'm still touring and hauling things in and out of a van. But she checked in on me through the whole of that tour. And sometimes that's all you need is another woman in a position of power to be like, I see what you're doing here, Hen. Uh, you know, and, it, and while she had been to art college, she spoke, and I hadn't realised how important that was, she spoke a language I understood. She spoke Scottish. She didn't sound like she came from the West End. She didn't sound like, you know, I wasn't alienated from it. I could see the journey she'd had. And I was just like, right, this is just about finding a map then. Yeah, it's like that so, teacher that gave you the opportunity to put on the plays in the school. It's just like somebody else going, I, you can do this and yeah. I'm going to give you a leg up or I'm just going to give you permission or I'm just going to yes. give you an odd that tells you, I yeah, keep, keep going. Yeah, yeah. And the cost is not nothing. Like, I think that's true of any working class artist man or woman but especially for women you know like the cost is not nothing you give up a lot of other shit to to have that and I was willing to do that up to and including my first marriage where I was like you know I had said to him this is what I'm planning doing and I think there was just a notion that maybe the relentless pressure from other places would gradually wear me down and I'm like man you don't know you don't know me yeah And part of that, I think, comes from, again, from that thing from my nanny of going, the quickest way to have my nanny do something was to say somebody didn't want her to do it. Like, that was the quickest way you go, I don't know if you'll like this film. So-and-so said it wasn't for you. Don't be dark. Put it on. We'll be fine. Let's sit and watch it. You know, like, there's a definite Fran thing that just comes from, if you've told me no, you're sadly mistaken. Um, (laughs) (laughs) you. I understand that you get to know, but you do not understand everything. So, you know, there's that came, you know, there was a lot of that for me. You know, there was a lot of like, and putting it together took a long time. So much so, well, it took one marriage for a start. And I went through other jobs like I did. I put it off. Like I started my youth theatre when I was in my early 20s, when I was back in in our growth and married. And what I hadn't realised that I'd built for myself was because I was good at running a room and because it had stayed with me, I had like seven, eights and nines, 10, 11, 12s, and then 13s and ups. Seven, eights and nines are adorable, but, you know, like by the time you're 10, 11, 12, you're like, save the planet, find the dolphins, don't smoke, don't take drugs. Like they are, it's hilarious, it's brilliant. They, want, they actively want to change the world. 
And then my seniors, having done a few shows, were like, can we come and start learning how to direct and work with the younger You know, like, so what was happening was I was running an academy of, like, yeah. and we did all sorts of things. We talked, we got, I, I contacted Trestle Mask Company, you know, the theatre company with masks. They gave us a set of masks. I trained the kids in masks. I talked the local supermarket into letting us come and free range through the supermarket and do street theatre and take over the tannoy on a Saturday. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, it was literally like I was just making shit up that we could do. You know it. what I mean? And actually what I was doing was giving myself this amazing training mm. in everything from Boal Theatre to, you know, site specific stuff to whatever and I remember one we did in particular where and it was like 10 11 12 you wouldn't be allowed to do this now and I had a mate who worked at the drug and aids project in Dundee and was working with harm reduction and whatever they were devising the, the young you know middle class are devising this show and what I decided was I would try and get them experience with the different things so the guy the laddie playing security I organised for him to go and shadow the security guards at, like, you know, the local fun fair, And, you know, God knows what that boy showed. So, you know, um, there was a girl who was a musician and I had a mate that was in a band. I was like, could you take her to a gig? Have you got, an, have you got a daytime gig? Could you take her in the van, take her to a gig? And parents just always said yes. Parents just always went, yeah, that sounds fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And one laddie in particular, I remember he was going to play the caseworker for the main character. And I remember saying, Sandy, do you want to go and spend a day with a guy I know who does this stuff and he went and worked at the drug and AIDS project for a day he was 11 and came back and he was just like um see what you're saying this thing that's not what happens can I tell you what happens I'm like yes you can Sandy tell me what wow. happens so the notion of like giving people authority over how the story gets told yes. really matters and again if you've if you've had people kind of encourage your story or affect your story you're very aware of like what the power of a good strong eye you can you know okay. and sometimes it meant phoning parents and going listen I know this sounds left field but I can vouch for this person or I'll drive them or I and nowadays let's say you would probably need a hundred bits of paperwork but at the time and this is like the 90s you know you can and and it's interesting because dozens of those kids are now lawyers or work in theatre it's amazing how many Gosh. of them work in law, social justice, or, <laughs> you know, so... What so, an yeah, experience but, you gave them, though. Like, that just sounds yeah, it was, tremendous, I, like, so I, creative. I, I, I also had a good experience, you know? I think yeah, it was one yeah, of yeah. Of course. Oh, that, I mean, you, you constantly, if you're working with young people, you just learn all the time. All, all like, it is a gift. All the time. And I think the thing that was interesting, I guess, for me was... Every year they came back because people didn't leave. You know, it's a small town. There's not lots of things available. They'd be like, yeah, but what are we doing next year? You know, so like... <laughs> Literally, you're barely finished one thing and they're yeah, like, yeah, what's happening you're, next? Yeah, <laughs> like, and, and you're obliged and they're not interested in repetition. Oh, no. And they want to do something new. So I was constant, like the actual rate at which I worked, because there were three classes, was really, really, you know, like it was really sizable. Yeah. Um. But I think the other thing that was, you know, by that time, what I discovered was things like community education. So I was also doing this with like laddies who were on probation and coming to a drop in centre and needed to learn how to like shoot and edit videos. Or, you know, I just became like the all purpose kind of arts and media person for like my local authority. Wearing all the hats. Wearing all the hats, you know, and actually used a lot of my productions. Like the thing that's interesting is I couldn't have gotten any of it done if I didn't have production training. 
because the reality was I didn't draft other people in to do things except for maybe the heavy lifting or the driving because I knew how to manage a production. Yeah. And I think that was the difference was that once I started writing professionally and directing professionally, I also just assumed I was like, right, nobody's going to hand you this. Like nobody's interested in you directing your stuff. And whilst I am fond of the Scottish canon or the stuff that is on, it wasn't as varied in the 90s. And it was definitely a thing when I was like, I don't want to do what somebody else thinks is important. I want to do the stuff that I think is important. I'd rather be in charge, thanks. Mm -hmm. So setting up that I was 29 when I set up the company, and by that time I had kind of done, I don't know, you know, but you know the thing they talk about having your 10,000 hours. Like I had 30,000 hours under my belt. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) And then some. (laughs) And then some. Because I had by that time I'd been a programmer as well. I was a programmer for my local authority. And that was interesting being on the other side of that equation of like buying in professional shows. So I learned how that worked from the other side. But I also, you know, was capable of pulling on a pair of dungarees and climbing about in the loft and looking at the state of the lighting rig and stuff with health and safety. Like my risk assessments, even now I'm the one that does the risk assessments for my stuff because I'm just faster than everybody else because I have seen so much shit. (laughs) So, you know, by that time I'm doing like quite big community Mm. projects with adults and children. And one of the things that I didn't realise that was going to affect me forever in my professional practice is... It means that you go in and you want 30 people on the stage. Like, if that's how you learn, the notion of two blokes sitting on the Tron Tron Studio stage on a couch, you're like, I couldn't, I couldn't less. We can't have 15 people, no. (laughs) And that, so realise it's setting stuff up and then going, oh my God, it's going to take me a while. Like, it was like, I started to do the thing. Uh And then I was like, oh, but to do the thing that's the size I want to do, but to do it professionally... I am going to have to kick ass, take names and and become a good financial bet because Aye. nobody's going to invest in this. And was that in terms of the stories that you were wanting to tell that required all of these characters to be I on think there's, a, there's some of that, like the stories are often dense. The stories have often got lots of vignettes and stuff in them. But I think the other thing was, I just know that even people who don't follow every step of the story have a great time if what you have is a big thing happening. I like spectacle. I don't think there's anything wrong with spectacle. I don't think it's unprofessional to have spectacle. And I oh, think if this. you've got 25 voices raised in the song, the person has to be dead on the inside. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So given that what I what I was very conscious of is that my my work is and it's it's a difficult line to walk because my work is not about intellectualizing about things. Now I'm setting up, I'm looking at my company about the time that things like suspect culture and things are on. So like talking things through on stage is in fashion. And whilst I have a lot of respect for the guys and I've seen them do other work, I just remember looking at it and going, that is the opposite of what I do. Like Mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's not what I'm after. So the things that I began with was the notion of, I had this burning sense of stories that were never told. You never saw women leading pieces. You know, you never saw people like my nanny. You never, you never heard Scott. You never, you know, all those different things. But also that I had been a programmer for all the different theatres and some people you just couldn't get into a theatre. The building's intimidating or the building's not for them. And often my theatres were like big, rackety, huge, 500-seater 70s tourn houses. 
So they're not particularly lovely, you know, with high up stages and then an orchestra pit. Like you're a long way away from the thing that's happening. But my local authority had all these fantastic outdoor spaces like, you know, lighthouse museums and outhouses and things that haven't been used very much. And I'm like, I could do shit with that. It's a bit of me. So, <laughs> so I started, so I created a site-specific commission every year for a writer and I directed it with, you know, community of 30 and 40 people in it. It wasn't just that you don't see these stories told. It was, I need to make this an event that anyone can say yes to. And that matters to me a good deal. I mean, I was very lucky my family went because of the way that my mum performed, but also because my dad had seen the Chevy at the Stag in the Black Black Oil in its first 70s run. And it, you know, as as a guy who was a union guy, like it just blew him away. So yeah. we went to see Wildcat in 784 every time they toured. We went to Dundee Rep every, you know, like I was taken to the seat, we went to the fringe. And I got given money to pick what the tickets were. You know, like we we did stuff as audience. Okay. And once you've been, you know, once you've been running a youth theatre a wee while, you realise that there are some kids that, you know, no matter how working class we might have been, we had the money to do that. And once you're teaching in a class, you can see who the you is. And then you can see that there's a kid over there that's got a single parent and is paying their own fees to get to this class. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, accessible yeah. ticketing. Yeah accessible spaces like psychologically mm-hmm. accessible stories where not only did I start by going that's what we're doing a bit of me was like what are all you fuckers doing why are you not doing this why is it that when it's professional all of a sudden it goes middle class because by this time I could smell middle class from outside the building so there was definitely a thing where you started and I was like I remember my production my producer my first producer when I set up the company she was like let me get this right She's like, you want to do theatre, but you don't want to do it in theatres. I'm like, yes. <laughs> She's like, you want it to be your stories. You don't want it to be other stories that have got brand recognition that people might come to. And I'm like, yes, that's right. She's like, and on top of that, you want to tell theatre that they're doing it wrong and that they should be doing this. I'm like, yes. She's like, great. I don't know how much of that we can do. We can try. I don't know. I, I can't just say yes, we can do that. But that was what it started with. It's that, and, and even now. I make plays about things that make me angry. I make I make plays to plug gaps that I'm furious that I'm still having to plug. Damn Rebel Bitches was a story, you know, it was an action adventure family drama set during Hurricane Sandy in New York with an 80-year-old Scottish gran in the Bruce Willis part. Like, that's what it, you know, that's what it was. And yes. it absolutely came from the fact that I sat through three terribly polished, terribly professional productions... For three shows in a row, I watched the older female character be there to give advice to the young male lead or to die and inspire him. Like she was either there to represent, you know, and I was like... Only good if I did. You know, and I was like, the older women that I know would poke you in the fucking eye if you tried to sideline them like that. And then the fact that, you know, theatre tickets are largely bought by women over 40... But, you know, what is it? 70-odd percent of the lines said on stage are written by men and 80-odd percent of them are said by men. You know, like, you know, the the proportion of male writers and and I was just like, no. I mean, none of that. None of this. Yeah, and it took me a while to get to that. Like, it took me a while, you know, like I did do stuff with male lead characters and things initially because, again, I remember there being a, review of like falling or something that I did with the National Theatre and Joyce McMillan's going 
not sure why we're moving away from like the women led what and I was like don't turn me into Stella Quines don't tell me what to do you know so there was a bit of like experimentation that would happen that's you know yourself like sometimes a show happens because the opportunity happens yeah you go can I get excited about that space or can I get excited about that opportunity and other things happen because you go you know like when I wrote Damn Rebel Bitches, I remember phoning my mum and going, I'm writing my nanny play. And she was like, okay, well, this has been coming for a while. You know. <laughs> and, yeah, but you can it, put your stamp on something, even if it's already there, like you're saying, like, you know, it's a ready-made mm-hmm. project that you're stepping into. It's mm-hmm. about putting your thumbprint on it and everybody that's involved thumbprint yeah. on it. Whereas if yes. you have the, and then there's another realm where you're, it's like a seed of an idea yes. that's yours and you're, yes. you're like the puppeteer and you're, uh huh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're inviting it. people into that space that makes sense for yes. that idea. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Totally. And I think that's a, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of what I did, a lot of what would now be deemed feminist work that I did initially actually just comes from being a good fucking human where you were like, you know, one of my actresses has said, I would love to do this, but, you know, the bairns are two and four and I know there's no space for returners. And I'm like, well, we'll make a space. Like, what do we have to do to make that doable? And we just sat down and went, what do we have to do to make that doable? Now, I don't remember that being in the marketing anywhere. I never marketed the company as somebody who was working with returning actresses. I just saw that it wasn't happening. I'm like, that's bollocks that that's not happening. In the same way that having worked with bad boys, you know, at community education, I knew that the guys that were vandalising the space are also the guys who play the music for you. If you do a promenade show, they'll stop vandalising it. (laughs) You just have to not go in and tell them not to mess with your play, darling, thank you very much. You have to go in and talk to them and find out why they're there. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of the things that I did, you know, the things about be playful, be generous, be you know whatever in the room also just comes from like be a decent human like stop climbing over everybody else like and that when you've taught kids you're literally doing that where you're like get off him you know like you're doing the, you're doing that the thing that is terrifying is how little adults change like it's not different running a room at adults is not different from running a room with kids people are still climbing all over each other the shy one's still in the court it's not different somebody's you know, still blathering when they're supposed to be listening all of that you know (laughs) somebody's fighting you for ownership of the room like there's Uh and and what I realized that I didn't I I I just didn't claim it and I didn't notice it initially was that when I was in rooms that were actresses and actors or creatives of different types and there was men and women in the room I just have been a unicorn for a long time there's lots of women leading rooms now but there's a thing that happens where you know, you get to 30, but the age I was setting up the company and all the women, they, they go and have kids and suddenly they're negotiating for their life to try and get back into the room. And they're on these big hiatuses and stuff. And you never see it happen to guys. Guys will be, oh, yeah, I've got kids. I'm like, so how come you're managing? You know, like, yeah. as someone who never had children, one of the reasons I was able to do the trajectory that I could do was because I never had to deal with that. Doesn't mean I'm not mad about it. No, 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 no. And also, let's say when I would have rooms of young men and young women, and it was often young men and young women because the work is demanding and older actors sometimes are a bit nervous about that. You know, like there's often a room that was a bit younger than me. What I would notice is that when there's a woman in charge of the room, the men don't know what the currency is. They understand how to play a room where a guy's in charge. They know how to buddy up to all of that. So one of the things that I did without even knowing that I was doing it was 
making the room more equal. Because if what you're looking for is the person in the driving seat to think well of you, they didn't know what that needed. And frequently what that needs in conventional rooms, and there's so much bad practice in theatre, hideous amounts of bad practice. And often what that means is do your boysy shit and like it's like school, you know, gets to break time, the guys are playing football in the middle of the room and the lassies are walking around the edge. Like I've seen that happen <laughs> in other people's rooms. And that, if you've sat in enough rehearsal rooms, especially rehearsal rooms in the 80s and 90s, where smoking was still allowed, and there would be a guy in charge of the room with his jacket slung over the back of the chair and a cigarette. And at one point, you know, things would pause and people would look to him for direction and he would blow a long stream of smoke into the air. And then you knew that you were about to get the thing that guys do where they do the equivalent of like their CV and a TED talk at you. You know, like that. that do you know what I mean? Like there's a certain type of guy like settles in with his, with his hands in his pockets and goes, well, here's what I think, you know, and... And I remember thinking, and the thing, if you were brought up in a pub, is you can spot a bore a mile off. Like, you can spot somebody that's full of blah a mile off. And 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 it always amazes me that given that a lot of theatre work is about status, like, you know, you, get, you can't get a show going unless you've got different status between the characters. And I just used to feel like people walked about with figures above their heads. I'm like, oh, here we go, bid for status. Or, he, you know, and I, I can't turn now. There's autism in my family. Maybe that's just me. But there's a definite, you know, like I would watch things like that and go, that is about asserting your status over the room, over the top of the, you know, and that's as aside from uh-huh. the blatant sexual harassment and shit that used to happen in the night. You know, like I have always been somebody that's been built like an hourglass and like you just lose count of how many times you've been commented on or grabbed or patronized you know like there's just lots and lots of stuff that you actually I want to say you wouldn't get away with it now but it's just a little hidden it's not gone it's not gone so there is a thing where and it's interesting I've watched it happen where I have I you know I have lots of approaches that I use with people but my basic is about finding out the first of all, there's a thing about understanding that the actors or the performers who are going to deliver the thing have to have room to manoeuvre, you know. So if you get something where there's been like a big design concept and then that takes up 50% of the space and then the director's got a big concept and that takes up 40% of the space. By the time you're performing, the actors that have got to deliver it have got like 5% of the wiggle room Aye. to move. And and if what you're doing, which I do with my work deliberately, which is you're inviting a bit of mischief and anarchy, like you are making spaces to go tonight won't be the same as tomorrow mm. and tomorrow will be the same as the day after that and that's the fun of this even in the most tightly scripted things that I do there is always space for the actors to know that they own it enough that you go make it work for tonight None well, surely of that's is... the makeup of a good director who builds that team and makes it a safe yeah. space well, well, and <laughs> But the thing that happens when you're a woman is that initially what you also have to do is hold a line that allows those who are greedier, which is always guys, to understand that that doesn't mean you don't have a vision for this. Like a Sandy show always looks like a Sandy I don't show. Just, I'm not just inviting you just to come and play. Yeah, I'm not like, going, oh, like... hey, this is about everybody collaborating uh-huh. everybody collaborating. Like, no, 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 I'm in charge. No, no, no. <laughs> you know? yeah. So there is a balancing act that has to be done that I've that I just think that guys that are in charge of rooms aren't necess- are just unaware of. Like, they just it just doesn't come up. 
But I always used to come from the basic of finding out if my actors were like, some actors are head and they do need all the chat and some actors are heart and they just need to know the feeling. And some actors are bodies and if you know are body led. And if you need them to cry, you just run them around the room four times until they're out of breath and they'll get there. You know, so like even just allowing people to identify for themselves what their way in comes from working with younger people who don't know how to express why they're not managing to get a thing. So I let's say I just think that the, the, the entire system is collapsible into any age group or makeup that you want to have, yeah. providing you have created a space where everyone is rewarded for having a bash in their different ways. And literally, you can boil my practice down to that of going, give it a bash and just see. And give that a bash and be a nice human. <laughs> yes, that's it. These are, and these are like really basic things. Yeah. But they are so often missing. They're so often, and it's really interesting, let's say just now at the moment, I'm up to my eyeballs in PhD work and the amount of verbiage that can go around this stuff is incredible. But I'm like, the the fact that what I have always done is push the notion that it's got to be playful really, really comes from the thing in my family where it was like, you know, there was drunk adults around you, you had to hold your space a bit as a kid. And the deal was, you can say whatever you like to an adult as long as it's funny, you know, you can you can fend that person off as long as you're funny and generous with it. Like you can't be funny and have the room laugh at them. You just have no. to make the room laugh. That's like a so, no, that's like a skill. That's yeah. It is, and it is, and I'm not, and you know, bless them. I'm I'm not. Uh, you know, there's a reason that I don't know if you remember Viz Comic, but like, there's a reason my my family call me Millie, like from Millie Tant, the feminist. Yeah. Because I, I for a long time, I didn't buy into it. I was like, he's an asshole. He needs told he's an asshole. You know, like there was a long yes. time where I saw that as a way of working with difficult guys who were drunk, maybe, right, and not well, yeah. making them angry. Whereas my impulse is really draw a line and go, do not mess with me. Don't do it. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, sorry, a... I didn't actually realise that's where you were going with that. Right, I, I completely understand now. You are right that knowing that that is a skill set that's available is of going, when something is going sideways in a room, mm -hmm. don't obsess about it. If it's a status play, you do. You call it out, you yeah. name it what it is, and you get rid of it in your room. Of but course. if it's something that's gone wrong and you can see the performers are getting tense because something's not working, as long as you can make them laugh about it, it's not a problem. You know what I mean? Like, the deal yeah. is to go, this, no one's going to die if today's work wasn't... I, I was so I'm literally going to say, I know saving lives. I mean, I do sometimes yeah. believe well, that people save lives. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes in that sense, like, we're not doing open heart surgery yeah. here. So yes. it's taking it yes, serious yes, because yes. it is important, but also, like, yeah, we're no... I think the other thing is that there's such a... And it's not a mindset, it's a fucking reality of scarcity in theatre. You only get so many days in the room. The pressure to get everything right is enormous, like absolutely enormous, because the days that you work on the thing that you want to work on versus the days that you go hustling to find the work or to fund the work or to place the work, the proportion is so small of creative yeah. days that I have watched people get in their own way because they care so much about having a good day that like, and you go, that is understandable. And part of the thing that, again, that I think is, my responsibility as a director, and I didn't see anybody else talking about it, is that you have a duty of care to your performers and your and your staff, your production staff. Like you have a, you got you got them into this. And the problem is that if you are working short term with someone who's a freelancer, 
then that contract's not explicit anyway. They're coming in and they don't know that you're going to take duty of care. But also, you don't know what they were going through at, before they got here and you don't know where they're going after. And I have watched actors walk in, having finished the show on a Saturday, to be in my room on a Monday. And we go, okay, let's be clear that you're not at, you're not going to be at the same point that somebody no, who's been still waiting carrying... for a few weeks. Aye, like, aye, aye. Yeah. Got, and if it's something, if somebody's had a year like that, because actors never say no to the work, they never say no to the work. Production staff never say no to the work. So when someone arrives and you're like, okay, you're doing the year where you get your bills paid. And what I realised was aye. my ask, The reason, one of the reasons that I do all of these things this way is that I am always asking for the fucking impossible. Like I am already going... I know this can't be done, but we are going to find a way. And, if you know, it, it takes years of having a practice to be able to look back and go, oh, a Sandy show is this, 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 this. But the the thing that defines all of them is wildly overambitious, like wildly fucking overambitious. You know, so I say Monstrous Bodies, 28 people on the stage, like massive thrust set that went out over Dundee Rep, stonking soundtrack and like flash mobs in the audience, like hugely overambitious. Yeah. Um, Falling was the same, you know, two and a half miles across the middle of Glasgow on foot in the subway and kidnapped and flung in a darkened van. Like just, you know, I'm really used to the idea of, if you like, the engineer approach of you use the storytelling to sell it to other people. You use an engineering approach to make it possible for everybody on the inside. So you start pulling it to bits and go, well, if we can get this thing, then we can try for that space. And if we get that space and the transition into that space is too hard, let's look at how to make that easier. But it's for me, it's forensic. It's engineering. Yeah, it's that problem solving. But it's yeah, like, you know, going, oh, that's a problem. That's a shame we can't do it. It's like, no, 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 we'll just figure it out. And this is the thing is that I've never, I'm just like, everything is a problem. You know, I say apparently when I started being working class was a problem, being a woman was a problem, being Scottish was a problem. big problem. And I'm all right. I, I, you know, I, I, you, you know, you, you don't understand that the fact that it's a problem is irrelevant. Like it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't have any bearing uh, on whether shit's going to happen. Or, you know? <laughs> And I, you know, so I think the thing is that I'm often, I am honestly often asking for the other directors have said that to me. They've come up to me after shows and gone, how did you get them to do that? How do you get them to do stuff like that? And I'm like, I don't get them to do anything. I just, I I make a room where I go, here is where I'm going. And what happens is everybody gets excited about the adventure. Come with me. <laughs> and and that, yeah. So my job is to be the one that gets that going and makes it sustainable and and there's definitely things, and there have there have been things where you know we have been in the middle of like a walkthrough, like a a, a dry te- you know a dry dress, of like a promenade bit, and the actor has stopped for a cigarette halfway through and gone, I I'm not gonna be able to do this without getting battered on the streets of Glasgow. Like this is not, and I'm like, okay, we're gonna work out how not to do it, you know. But there's not an out, <laughs> like there's never a point where you go, okay, we'll take it inside. It's never happening. But I think the thing is that if people know that you will go to bat for them and go, whatever you tell me is unworkable, I believe you because you've done seven things that were impossible already. So if you come to me and you go, I am struggling with this thing, you're just like, fine, we will fix shit out of that so that it's not your problem. Yeah. And that's what is, that's what I mean about, that's what's genuinely collaborative about my work. And that only happens if you're doing something where people go, and how will that happen? I'm like, don't know yet. Get back to you. You know, like it's I'm not... on the bus. I, I, yeah. At one point, I, I can't even remember which show it was. And I, 
I don't know why people were reluctant. Oh, I know why, because it was on the altar of a church. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I remember people being like, eh? And we're like, yeah. just come on the trust train. Yes. Like, yeah. I can't tell yeah. you how we're going to do or what it's going to look like. We're not, got, yeah. we're not quite there yes. yet, but like, yeah. you know me and you know us. So surely that's <laughs> like, do you know what I mean, You've, we've done things yes. before. Have we ever let you down? No. Yeah. So just come on the yeah. trust train and then we'll figure out the gallery, all right? <laughs> and the thing that's great about that is that, and I and this is a big thing for me. It's like, you know, even the, the, the PhD stuff I'm doing is talked is mm. called conditions for mischief. Because <laughs> what happens is you're getting up to mischief together. You're not like the actual playful thing is going, I don't know. And we may not be allowed to do it next week, but we're getting to do it now. So let's yes. do it. You know? And I find that you get that both with companies, you know, with, with the people that you're that you're making something with. And with the audience, like that you can create promenade shows in particular where people will be like, oh, are we going in here? Amazing. Can I open it with the key? Thanks. You know, like people will become your accomplices. And one of the things that I think is amazing and it's a kind of full circle thing for me is I remember doing a show in Glasgow that was really like it's massively challenging. And Glasgow is my favourite site specific playground because everything is ostentatious like the public lighting is outrageous and a bit tacky you've got jossy big lions in the middle of the square every time you look up there's badly carved angels gurning at you from down to like it's just and there's always like wee snickets and that you know but the other thing that's interesting is that you will always get people in public who make your play look better because glaswegian chat and involvement is higher than most cities oh i've had scenes that i've had to take out of plays I had one scene on a subway car where I had an actor and all he was doing was whispering in the girl's ear he wasn't crowding her physically he was she was just looking unhappy and he was standing behind her talking to her we tried it three times and three times guys came up and offered to hand this guy his ass and I'm like okay we're cutting this somebody's getting a sore face yeah yeah because and it wasn't and I was always in the car to be like it's okay it's a play it's a are you sure are you related to her like they weren't going away. Your honours. <laughs> but I, you know, but what I think is that that's, you know, that is also the people who, you know, like when you're taking an audience, like wandering them through a pub to get to the back of the pub or something like that, the background chat will sound like you scripted it. You know, like the amount of things that happened in that show that people were like, oh, I loved the bit when, and I'm like, yeah, that wasn't me. That's just Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not taking credit for that. But one of the things that I think is amazing is also who it is that says yes to those kind of performances. Aye. Because kids get it. Kids get promenade. Middle class, it's interesting. I am so scunnered clearly at like middle class, middle, you know, middle income, (laughs) middle England theatre goers, that they are the one set of people who are frequently uncomfortable in my work. Because you go in a space and you have to work out where to stand. And if you don't leave yourself alone and you're fuffing about it, you'll end up in the wrong place. You know, you'll end up standing in a bit that's in the way. Whereas kids automatically go into a space and go, oh, can I sit in the big chair? And you go, yes, you can. On you go. You know, but like they will immediately go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We could all sit along the back and then I could be up on the altar and that would be great. You know, like, so there's a thing. But the other people who are phenomenal to have in promenade work are older women because they have no fuck budget 
They have spent all the fucks that they're going to spend. They've given all the fucks that they're ever going to give in their life. So by the time you get them at the point where they're in their 50s, their 60s, their 70s, they love the format because you get time for a chat between scenes sometimes as you move from space to space and smokers can have a cigarette and you get to like reassert yourself a little bit. They get a chance to talk about the people on the stage, the people they're seeing. But the other thing is just you won't, breaking into a building doesn't frighten them. Nora Ephron said something along the lines of a woman over 50 could steal the Empire State Building and get away with it because nobody would know she was there. Like, it's, a, you know, there is a invisibility. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and as I'm in my 50s, like, I am hitting that hard. And again, I'm just like, oh, no, you are sadly mistaken. But, like, it's, you know, like, it is a thing that lots of other women, what you don't realise is that all those so-called invisible women also know that if there's any shit off a security guard, they'll use the mum voice on them. I'm sorry, what? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't know. You're not going to tell Ted. <laughs> Over shit, they're going to do what they want to do and you're just going to have to cope with it. So what I find is that mischief making genuinely, there's an age where people let themselves off the hook again. So what was that, really... A- I'm, I'm looking forward to that bit. That sounds exciting. Oh. <laughs> I, was well, honestly, about, I, mean, I was worried about turning 40 last year, but this sounds good. I, no, I mean, I think that's the... I think <laughs> the thing that's amazing is that by the time you're in your 50s, you are reconnecting with who you were when you were 14. Like you're strongly reconnecting with like you have done any of the amount of conventional that you're going to. And now you're just growing back into yourself. And as you're doing that, let's say as you hit menopause, nobody, I remember my mum used to say, she's like, I'm worried about you, Sandra. I wasn't this arsy with people till I was 40. Like I had to hit menopause before I was this rude to people. <laughs> and it's not, you know, it's that thing of I'm not rude, but I am like, yeah. I'm very clear about what I will and won't do. I'm used to negotiating as a leader, there are things where you go, well, no, I'm stopping everybody in the room because we're going to talk about that. You know, there's an assertiveness that people do read as aggression in women. But yeah, like that, mom- that's all a good thing. Like, that's not a bad thing. Like, yeah, why there's none like, of that that's a bad thing. Yeah, but again, you can see how if what your family background is, is be chirpy, be funny, be ma- manage them. And I tend, you know what I mean? Like, I'm very, I'm very mindful and conscious of the points where I go, I'm moving into management mode because otherwise you're in it forever as a woman, you know? So there's times where I go in and I go, no, you need, you guys need to manage me, you know? And I go in, that's my default. And then I might move into that gear, you know? But what I hadn't realized that my mum was referring to (laughs) is that as your estrogen, like your be nice to people hormone drops, you just get to a point where you're like, I can't be fucked with any of this. That's not happening. Like, and I had it, I couldn't believe that. I was like, oh, I remember phoning my mum being like, I think I unlocked boss level. And she's like, yeah, I was frightened that was going to happen with you. Now you need to walk. Well, it's that thing like, you know, folks, you know, that thing where somebody in the street, a guy says to the street, oh, smile, it might never happen. You're like, I'm not here for your entertainment. Like, thank you very much. Absolutely. There's not, I'm like, I can, I can smile, but only if I'm laughing at your fucking jacket. Like, it's not, you know, like there's a... And again, what I've discovered, and that's a pub thing, is recognising that if you if you answer back in exactly the same energy, guys are either highly offended or massively amused. But there is a definite thing as a default of just going, what you want to do is make me smaller and make me understand this public street's yours and pal, it's mine. You know, so like, and, and because I do so much work in the public street, yeah. I am really used to negotiating that. Like I am used to negotiating drunks bunches of guys that want to say things you know like there's I'm, I'm used to negotiating but 
also young policemen who are umpy and trying to uh, trying to um, arrest my actors. You know, like there's there's any number of that. And through all of it, what we discovered was the best bouncer to have was a woman who was 40 plus with a pair of glasses who can speak like your mum. That's the winner. And that's why I'm always I'm always the usher for my audience, because it's that thing you're saying of going, come with me. You know me. And if anybody's trying to get to you, they've got to go. I'll through sort them. I'll sort them <laughs> you know? So there's a definite thing of knowing when to disappear so that they can be in the show, but also knowing when to be there so that people go, that nice that nice lady that brought us in is <laughs> still, still with us. She's dressed as a demon with funny eyes, you know, with funny contact lenses now, but she's the same person, you know. But, I, you know, what I discovered was that by far my most unmanageable audience, not unmanageable for me, but unmanageable mm. for the world, were women over 50. Like women, women over fifty and sixty, and it's funny because, as I say, I've been writing about that age group since I was twenty, because these are the women who the women raised in your life. me, and yeah. I, I didn't ever see on stage, and I could guess at and see through Liz Lockhead's poetry and songs, mm. but I just wasn't seeing them blotting out the sun the way that they did for me. So I've been writing about these women all my life and now I'm moving into that age group and I'm like oh that's why that happened <laughs> ah but I the mischief that I have gotten up to uh, we did a show at the Edinburgh Fringe that was about the witch trials mm-hmm. and it was about a wedding in a Scottish family just a contemporary wedding in the Scottish family and it was about the siege of Leningrad so it was about these different so basically as you sat at the wedding this was all the history of all the families you know, that were sitting in the pews. Got you. And we got a vodka sponsorship. I don't know about you, but when you're putting a show together, you know, that thing where you go, well, I can't get money for that, but if somebody gives me stuff, I can turn that stuff into money. So because the Siege of Leningrad and we had gotten this vodka deal, you know, we had gotten crates and crates and crates of this vodka. And, and and there was a scene that you visited a pub and we left the crates of vodka and we asked them to set up shots and people arrived and they were sitting in the CG lane and got in their headphones and they would like get shots of vodka. But we also ran a, a, a thing where you could have uh, vodka cocktails before you went out. Right. And when you came back and we had a dealie with the venue bar. And I remember this bunch of women, we were doing a ticket deal with the WI, with the Women's Institute. And I remember these women showing up and it was 11 o'clock in the morning. The bar was literally just opening. And these dames sat and had two rounds of cocktails. Then they had the shots during the show. And then they had another cocktail when they came back. And then they went to lunch. And I was like, man, I aspire to be that hard. But I, like, I just, you know, they don't need me to do a play to get mischief. They're just generally <laughs> mischief. <laughs> I like how they gravitated towards your mischief, though. They obviously knew. Yeah, there was definitely a thing, but part of it was that. It was like, it's great. We thought if we can walk, we can smoke. And I was like, yeah, you can. She was like, great. So we're outside some of the time. I just, you know, but I think that is also an accessibility thing of like. Oh, yeah. If you yeah, not, it goes back I, to these spaces that feel that are not for you and you're yeah. to sit in a seat and no talk and behave yourself like that. Noise. Yeah, yeah, you totally. And there is, I mean, you know, there is to a point theatre etiquette that, that is required, like when you're in those spaces, just as there yeah. is when you're in a street. Do you know what I mean? Like yes. you're not going to yeah, hear yeah, it if yeah. you're talking the whole time. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah. you're no in the play, <laughs> right? Okay. But then he gave you yes. a map. But I also think 
I also think that there's a part, I think this, I'm big on the idea of rights and responsibilities. Yeah. So like I have the right to ask for silence as a theatre maker, but I have the responsibility to make it really fucking worthwhile. If you're going to be. Yes. You know what I mean? So like there is a thing about the standard of what you do. And that to me, doing something to a certain standard is also an accessibility thing. People have paid money that they can ill afford sometimes to come and watch the thing, especially if like me, you're often working with first time audiences. These people have ventured financially, psychologically. They've maybe traveled to get to it. You better be fucking worth it. Give them something. You know? Give them something worth watching. That's a, so, like, yeah. even a bit with young people. Like last night, I can think of a, a, an encounter where a young person where I had like uh-huh. clapped a rhythm to get their attention because they were hyper and they uh-huh. were clapping it back and they do that thing where they're still talking and they clap yes. another rhythm and then eventually I was like, so why do we do that again? And somebody was like, um, so that we're quiet. And I was like, well, no, not so mm. that you're quiet, like that. I don't need you to quiet. Why am I clapping a rhythm? And somebody was like, oh, because you're going to tell us something. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Uh, like because I have go. to tell you something important. Yeah, like, yeah. It's for you. It's not for me. It's like yeah. for you. Like I've got information for you that you yes. need to hear. It's important for you. So like, it's not that like, I'm just telling you to be quiet because I've got the power. <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? Like, exactly. Yeah. Be quiet. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, when we talk about bad practice in theatre, I see that a lot. I see it in rehearsal rooms. I see it in performance. I don't go to a lot of theatre. I went to theatre last night to watch Al Seed do Plinth because he is the single scariest performer I've ever seen in my life. And I am a, I am willing as an audience member to get involved, but I'm always terrified he's going to come off that stage at you. And within the first five minutes, you couldn't hear a pin drop because the offer is so solid. You know what I mean? Like, yes. even if you're not following all of it, you're like this is deranged, you know, and there wasn't, and it had been a noisy audience to start. We were like, everybody was unwrapping sweets that sounded like Arctic trucks, just like that endless, <laughs> that happens in Scottish theatres. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, and his work is very different from mine, but I've I've watched Al's work since we were at the Arches together in like the early 2000s. Okay. And it has always had that mesmerising quality because you actually just know that you won't see anything else quite like it. You know, I can't get excited about Death of a Salesman. I can't get excited about, I just can't. Because I remember knowing that I was good at English and that I was good at stories and things and looking at this stuff and going, yeah, but I could tell you that anyway. Like, I get that they have their place, but, it, you know, so much of the canon is is dull, straight white guy stuff. You know, the stale male pale thing. And the thing that I just thought was great was, like, the offer that he had was one that meant that it didn't matter if you were coming in knowing none of his work Mm -hmm. or whether you, you know, like I don't think theatre is, even now, is clear enough about the idea that the canon that we think of as canon assumes that you've seen other work. And and we're not allowed, we're not allowed to assume that people have seen other work. You have to be able to stand on your own. Yeah, like like, like the promenade theatre, like, or somebody just stumbling across something in the street. What's this? Like, you need to grab them. Like, and that's, that's your And that is what I love about street theatre. You know, I mean, I've done yeah. shows at the Fringe that I've had, again, youth theatre shows at the Fringe that I've had drumming street theatre and physical street theatre. And part of it is that you're fighting for us. There's hundreds of other things to look at. You better be worth looking at. Aye. You know, and, and I don't, but the other thing is that the flip side of that, especially when you're working with youth and community is, everybody deserves to be able to do something and just go, God, that's cool. 
And that is like, I am, I'm very committed to the notion of going, we're putting this in because people will just be gobsmacked that we did it. Let's just do, you know, like doing things to be spectacular or doing things to be, I just think there's nothing wrong with spectacle. People adore spectacle. Well, if you can't do it when you're on a stage or you're like playing. And yet so much, so much stage is just second rate telly. Like so much stage has no spectacle. When we did Monstrous Bodies, I developed a young company and um, the rep didn't have one. And I developed one for the sh- because we were talking about Mary Shelley when she was 12 and the modern story was about a girl in 14. And I'm like, I'm not having adults make a story about being 14. I We're going to put 14 year olds on mm-hmm. the stage. And I was struggling with that show because it was on the stage. You know, now the rep's got a lovely, you know, rep does this lovely thing where the stage level goes out into the voms, into the front house. So you come in on the level of stage. I'm like, there's got to be stuff I can do with that. Like, there's got to be ways to break this space open so that we're using the whole theatre. And we did. We did lots of stuff. But the same thing, I was like, right, 14-year-old girls come and see this. You can't tell them to stay off their phone for two hours. It's a two-hour show. You know, you can't tell them to stay off their phone for two hours. You can't ask them to stay still for the whole hours. And I'm like, okay, so there has to be times where people can get up and move. And there has to be times where they're allowed to put their phone on. So we had a character who, whenever she took her phone out, everybody else was allowed to take their phone out. Ah. And that meant, and they would film things that were on the stage or they would send messages on Twitter about what was on the stage. But, like, we built it in because I'm like... You know, the reality is that two hours is a long time now for an adult to stay off their phone. So why would you think? But the thing that was hilarious was press night came round. I had nothing to do with this. There was a there was a number of physical sequences, dancing. I was working with Emma Jane Park, some phenomenal choreography and stuff that she had done. Really demanding choreography that she had done with these young people. And as the first proper kick-ass, if you like, dance number came up, Mm-hmm. A whole row of young people stood up in the in the auditorium and did it alongside. Now, reviews and things mentioned that. It was one of my 15-year-olds who had decided to put it online when she was practising. All of the mates in her class had decided to practise it. And wow. then they all came to press night because that was the cheapy tickets. And... Uh, and there was this whole thing. And I remember thinking at the time, I was like, this is what I'm after. It's like somebody improvised this bit of mischief. And, I, and they were right in front of me. My designer told my hand, going, what the fuck is happening? I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. It's stop brilliant. It. It's excellent. I'm loving it. And that is what happens when you give 14-year-old girls power in the room. They're going it. to teach everybody the dances. <laughs> the dances. Of course they are. You know, what else are you going to do? <laughs> the reality is that most of the wonderful things that have happened in my show have happened because the right kind of mischief has been in the room. And whilst the framework and the stories really matter, they do really matter, the reality is that I'm building a playpen for everybody else. Because otherwise, in my first board meeting with Poor Boy, when we set it up, I'm sitting with a room of people, some of whom had theatre experience, some of whom did, you know, like it was a very mixed board. And uh, I'd said, like, the deal has to be that we're not doing thinky theatre there's a lot of thinky theatre around just now. I was like, the deal has to be that when someone goes home from one of our shows, they have to feel like they've been to a great party and the right person grabbed them on the way out and snogged the gob off them. That's what it has to feel like. And it's in the minutes where I'm like, minute it. That's what, And that has never changed for me. It's like, what you want is for everybody to leave as high as kites. Like, that's 
what you're after is that peak yeah. experience thing where everybody leaves high as kites and kids are going, did you see that bit where I got up and then I did so and so? You know, like that. Yeah. I'm looking for that, but I'm looking for it in the adults as well, you know. So um, so I think probably more, uh, whilst the stories, let's say, are massively important to me, they're one. They're just one of the things that go into the construction of something that's like this massive towering Disney cake, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of like, we're only going to be able to keep this together for like X amount of hours. <laughs> But everybody gets to have a slice, do you know? And and that was Monsters Bodies was really yes. interesting because by the end of it, the word had gone round that there was dancing in the audience, which meant people thought there was it was allowed to be dancing in the audience. So it just happened. Just happened every night. It had happened because these girls had prepped it. But it happened, there was people danced at different points just Gosh. about every performance because somehow that chat had gone round. And sometimes it was people and their dads. And sometimes it was people and, you know, like I just... Which again is something that I find that you are writing, you're managing two audiences if you're a theatre maker in Scotland. You are, you have to do something which will land with the theatre sector, the money, the critics, the reviewers, the media commentators. Yeah. And if you are bold enough, you are also doing something of going, those things are not exactly what the audience wants. And you, so part of my skill at storytelling now is that I've learned how to do both. You know, like I have learned to tell local legends that will, you know, charm the living daylights out of a well-read reviewer into something. But for the four-year-old at the front, it's just a great big fucking dragon. (laughs) 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 You know what I mean? That is, yeah, and what a skill set that is. That's all of these things that you've described, all of your, the way you've, like, curated your practice and how you work and your ethos and, like, yeah, you are a unicorn. You are a unicorn. Well, the thing is, though, the more I, like, often when I see you talking, I just go, she already knows this. Like, there's not, <laughs> like, a lot of the skill set, I think we have a big skill set in common, which is the thing of going into the room and we're going to make it doable for everybody. Hey. But that doesn't mean that there's not a bar. You know, like, that thing, the totally. notion, I get so, I get so tired of the notion that if you privilege process, somehow the product will be less. I'm like, that's bollocks. You just need to be willing to aim high totally. and you need to be able to to engage and act everybody in the room. You need to activate everybody in the room. Yeah. And then you'll be able to reach whatever. I think the most amb- ambitious play I ever did was a site-specific on a deserted airbase and barracks in the middle of Ed's, like, miles outside of Edsall, and it was six teenage girls who wanted to tell a genuinely terrifying Halloween story. So they told a story about getting stalked as a teenager. We drove the audience around in cars. We, like, ran through people's bedrooms. We set up... There was a bowling alley. We had like a crawl space that you had to crawl through to get to, like it was, and then and we finished with like a, a candlelit vigil where they all disappeared off into the fucking woods. The parents were so freaked, but the reality is, I've I've never done anything more ambitious because I had the run of this whole basically a little town with nobody in it. You know, like yeah, I, I'd been right, uh-huh. a ghost town, yeah, and it ran for three nights, and it was a youth theatre production in Aberdeenshire, and and that's what I mean is like you know that process came from them going no we want to do something that's like being a being a teenager is actually mm-hmm. scary we'd like to be clear how scary it is how scary it is we'd like to really show that but we also want it to feel 
like a ghost story or feel like a Halloween story. And I'm like, okay, as long as we've got a good, strong remit. So again, like you, some of your skills will come from people go, we want to do so-and-so. And then you're sitting there with your professional skills going, okay, how... How am I going to make right? that? You know, and that's I just it's a good day when Sandy says, "Okay, let's see how we can make that happen." That's always yeah. a good day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so many words of wisdom, although that's not been your like mm. that, that's not been your mission. But like you've said mm. so many things, I'm like, yes, like get on a t-shirt. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, and I know that yeah. comes from the experience that you've got, and that that that's yeah. amazing. But it also just comes from who you are like i'm getting a sense of this is just who you've always been i think there's a thing where you know whether it whether it comes from something joyful or whether it like i feel like there are twin engines that i've had my whole life and one is that stories and performing and doing things is great fun and i am hugely curious about what the next thing will be so when funders are like so what is it that poor boy does i'm like anything i'm interested in I know that's harder to fund, but that's what it does. It does whatever I'm interested in. And then the other twin engine is that because I was brought up in this family of six, you know, like this this posse, this wee, like, den of lion cubs, <laughs> my, the two old, I was the oldest granddaughter. Right. So the two older than me were two brothers. Okay. And I spent my young life from the time of five being like, how does he get to do that? And I don't get to do that. What's that about? And they'd be like, well, it's your age. I'm like, okay, so when I'm six, I get to do that, right? And they'd be like, well, you're a girl. You know, and we were still at an age where people would go, well, no, because you're a girl. You know, I mean, when I was five was the year that women were allowed to get a credit card on their own without their husband oh. or their fat. Like, I was born in the dark ages, you know? <laughs> so, like, there is a thing. Once you're in your 50s, you're like, holy shit, I really was brought up. So there's these twin engines, if you like. And yeah. one of them is genuinely curious and joyful and is about saying yes to things and getting involved with things. And the other is about going, the fuck we're having that. You're <laughs> You know, so there is a, like... There is a definite thing where, like, the level of rage that I have about inequalities is also, is an energy, do you know? So it's like, I, you know, they sound like they're very contradictory, but I don't struggle to have both of them here. And it's one of the things that, you know, unlike a lot of, pe a lot of people my age, I love social media. I do a lot of online work. And part of it is because that's where I see change and activism happening. That's where I watch the younger generations talking to each other. Yeah. And also because the tech fascinates me. Every time there's an update on bloody Apple Music, I'm like, holy shit, my dad would have loved this. You know, like there's there's just like a genuine love of technology making things easier for humans to like yeah. connect or do things so yeah there is this proper twin engine thing if you like of like hugely curious and hugely enthusiastic and actually and I probably do I blame high school for this I was absolutely bored out of my skull for five years I went to a terrible high school so like you know getting home without getting broken and beaten was a big deal you know like it was rough it was a really rough school and the teaching wasn't very good so it wasn't of much of a standard. So I was hideously bored for the whole of my high school. And I've spent the rest of my life going anything rather than be bored. Like if I know where to park my car at an office, I'm like, I've been here too long. Anyway, <laughs> you know yes. what I mean? Like I... Yes, makes I up. Like, 
yeah, I'm, I'm not, I would rather, and I have, I've taken big risks and some of them haven't paid off. Like sometimes I've gotten us into, and I'm very lucky. I am absolutely married to a partner in crime. It's like, what are we doing? Okay. You know, like there's love a- Love that, you know, love that. You, you know, like, come on the train, come yeah, on yeah. the train. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you get you, you hone your you hone your eye, and you're like, you're my person. You know that makes sense. But I, you know, I I think the thing is that you know when you're a woman, when you're working class, risks are harder to take because what, people will hold them against you more. You know, like people will remember a duff show that you did, and it'll represent all women's work in a way that it doesn't when it's a gang. Like I've sat through so many gank shows that like privately educated boys of 25 have directed and gone I'm so bored of this stuff nobody ever complains you know but the other thing is that if you've no financial safety net if you have you know and I don't like being a producing artist all my life has been hard and as you get older it gets harder because you watch the people who are your peers properly moving into that fat-assed middle management don't worry about work don't worry about pension type area and the only thing that I have to keep me warm is the fact that I'd rather stab my own eye out with a pencil than do their day. You're just like, what's the point of living, man? Like, and I, I you know, I, 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 there is this thing where I, Jake and I have a shorthand. I'm like, that's someone who liked wearing school uniform. <laughs> so there is a thing where it's not part of the design of my life. It's also about doing that thing of finding one of ours all the time it's like just establish- and it's not that there aren't people deep in organizations and things who aren't actually chaos agents in their own right you know totally. and that's yeah i mean need those people to be yeah, in those positions you're sorting the money i'm just i'm doing the, yeah. the playback <laughs> yeah you know and there is there's a that you know it has it it has come back every 10 years there's there's been conversations about the fact that I have very marketable skills, you know, like I am fantastic at things like risk management. I am great at organisational stuff. You know, there's all sorts of things that I could get paid really well for. And I just keep saying no, because I will be climbing out the window by the second week. There's just so some of it is the curiosity comes from like a congenital lack of ability to tolerate boredom. Like I literally don't, I I actually can't make myself do it. I just, and I'm a very disciplined person. I have made all sorts of things from scratch. I work very hard, but I actually don't have that. I'm not, it feels like it compromises my humanity too hard. I wouldn't know who I was if I had to say yes to something that was going to bore me. Being an artist is about the fact that you have to do it if you're going to be yourself. And everything else is just working out how to get that in line. So what I realized was I am both an artist at heart and I'm an activist. You know, I think the thing is, if you can see inequalities, if you're insightful and able to see things, it gets rid of things like imposter syndrome. Because you're like, don't give me that. There's some wank who's like 35 with no experience and his mate knew him at public school and gave him the gig. And he's making an absolute arse of it. Who's the imposter? Do you know what I mean? So I have the opposite. We have it. We we call it the 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 Chad school of feminism. Um, where like I was working on a, a film set with all these young American lassies, and I and they were like, "But how do we get ourselves in there?" And I was like, "You get angry about it. Like, stop waiting for somebody to give you permission to be on a stage. There's some fucking numpty called Chad who has walked into that job, 
like and he's in your job get past it like get in in front of him get past them and what happens is you realize that imposter syndrome's bollocks imposter syndrome is something they tell people who are being excluded from things so that they'll internalize it and think it's their attitude problem as opposed to the fact that there's systemic inequality and i feel like i've never not known that i don't i feel like i grew up knowing that because mm-hmm. my dad was a feminist, like my dad was a union guy. My dad was forever sitting down and going, that's not fair. So this is what we're going to, you know, so there's yeah. going to be a strike. That's not happening. So, you know, so I guess that's the thing is that's the that's the twin engines is going. An activist is always raging about shit, you know, that there's, that, you know, like that's a good thing. You know, Thank God for the rage. Like, you know, <laughs> like the, rage is, the rage is always there. But an artist is always saying yes to things. And it's yeah. just about doing, it's not a restful way to live and it's not a secure way to live. Yeah. But you are more alive than most people while you're doing it. Sleeping your deeds and all that. It really is. Like there is a bit of that. And again, I wonder, I lost a lot of people really early. So I wonder if I do do the thing of just being like, this'll be over sometime. Like at some point, this'll be over. Or, you know, I'll be I mean the pandemic was hard, you know, like the thing I go, you know, I'm immune compromised. So like all of a sudden I have to mask when I'm reading leaving the room. It's a pain in the ass. You know, but there's all sorts of things that you go, yeah, this could be over. So you 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 know you keep saying yes to it. But I think that's the thing is that you keep saying yes to it because the other thing you know is that you are seeding it into all these other people who are like going to go out. This is how we change the world. You know, this is like, this is how you win Sandy the just whispering in a lot of years. <laughs> <laughs> and there is, like, I think I have probably, you know, some of the things that I'm most proud of are things like, you know, those six teenage girls that I'm talking about. Yeah. That there's not, you know, they didn't all go on to be makers, but they all stood their ground about what subjects they wanted to study. They all made big, they realised that making choices was up to them, that they were allowed to make choices, where they had really come from a paradigm where that wasn't obvious, but because they were given complete control of this thing, they were like, no, I can assess that. I know how to do that. You know, like they just, and, and you know, ultimately... I meet parents all the time, actually, or you must do as well, where, like, you know, they're like, you know, she's studying law now. She's never the same after she did that show with you. She was never the same, you know, and it's, you're never quite sure if they're saying it like a good thing, but what they mean is there's a, there's a level of self-possession they Absolutely. came out with. <laughs> yeah, and th- that's and that's the privilege of it, like working in the arts. I think is just that engagement with with people and and you know infecting their lives, like being a part of their story, however big or however small. Um, then being part of your story as well, like the amount of people, the amount of collaborations that you've had oh, over God, the years and the audiences and the encounters, like whether they be big or small, like. Are you? Please tell me you're writing a book. Please tell me that you're writing. A, I mean, never mind that well, PhD. Just get your book. Actually, written. well, so part of the PhD, if I get it right, let's say, is about conditions for mischief and generosity. It's about the idea that, like, we have lots of language around theatre technique, and what we don't talk about is the fact that if you have that in the room, if you want to pursue mischief, if people have prioritised being playful, then what you're doing is you're flattening out this this the status. And what happens is, you know, you stop being a tour group and you start being a gang. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and that, in very basic terms, like... See, I was never it. cool enough at school to be a part of a gang of any discussion. <laughs> so that, I think that's probably why I've migrated into this world. Oh, like, just look at that. feel like a gang. And I'm, like, so, like, goody two-shoes, like, would never do anything wrong. I was wearing the school right. uniform, but that was because that's what you done, Sandy. Like, uh, yeah. like, good. Yeah, so yeah. I think, actually... 
just listening to you and I'm like yeah I do like the mischief bit because I get to do it in my work because in, in real life I'm like uh-huh. such a goody two-shoes and I do everything by the book but I get to play yeah. most days yeah. so I get I the best of both. And I think that's the thing is that thing you talk about about a real book there are real books everywhere mm. and that like if I ever wrote in it that would be about what it was was about how to rip up the real book because the reality is that both artist and activist for me is about going, who wrote that fucking real book? I'm not sh- I don't agree with that. I'd rather be in charge. You know, like, I don't I don't know that I agree with this. Yes. But I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that thing of being mischievous is about breaking the rules, but being an activist is also about breaking the rules. You yeah. know, so like, yeah, yeah, yeah. for me, that is genuinely, that's, that is the commonality. That has to be the thing that I write about because it's the thing that bridges both sides of this. And the thing is that, you know, that nobody doesn't benefit from mischief. You have never seen somebody get into mischief and not be a brighter, shinier, more themselves version of themselves, which makes me think that capitalism doesn't want us to do it, and that's bullshit. Do you know, like, it's, you know, it feels like a moral duty that if you have the ability to, like, light that touch paper on other people, then you have to go... And do it like the English teacher that I'm talking about, who, mm. who was a very, you know, conventional primary school teacher, but who used to send my my stories off to national competitions without telling me. And she only told me when I won them, wow. which meant that I came out of primary five unaware that I'd failed to win some things and just knew that I'd won three national competitions. Well, and like, that's proper mist. Do you know what I mean? You're just yeah. like, that's. She sat there and she looked at my mum. She went, I'm making a writer as your daughter. That's what I'm doing right now because that kid's got talent. And I, you know, I, I still maintain that that's absolutely, like, that's what it is. It's not a look at me thing. It's no, not a hope no. the floor thing. And the thing is, you're doing that for others now. Do you know what I mean? Like, yes, in your position, like, do you know what I mean? Like, that's part of the you know, with your work and also, like, like, with the likes of CEC, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you are giving yeah, people yeah. that space to like you know speak their truth and like work things out and yeah. and and that experience you've got like it comes with you, you've got yeah. advice to give because you've been there done it seen it got yeah, the yeah. t-shirt <laughs> you know that's part of the hold the door open for the next generation thing is the idea of i have this thing called football football team feminism when i'm like you can be feminist you can be an activist in lots of different ways you just have to find your place on the football team so like my job is not to educate the 22-year-old guy who doesn't know the first thing about being equal. That's not my job anymore. It was my job when I was 30. That's not my job anymore. My job is that if somebody's out of line, is to knock over the middle-aged old fart guys my age so hard on their ass they don't know what happened to them and take them off the field so that they don't bother women younger than me. Do you know what I mean? So my job now is to knock them off and go dance with a fucking adult, you coward. And my other role is to educate feminists that are younger than me. You know, my mm-hmm. other role is to, like, say activists, yeah, they're going to hate that, but that's okay. You're not, like, no one's going to thank you for breaking the rule book except for the people who benefit when you break the rule book. That is the opposite from the people in power. <laughs> Do you know? So okay. the reality is the people, in, you've got to make your peace with the fact that the people in power are going to be upset because you broke the rule book that's how you know you're doing it right (laughs) you know and sometimes you need somebody that's the age of your mum to say that and there's times where I think god you know I'm just making this up like everybody else but you realize that you have clout as somebody who is in the middle of years you have plenty of clout there's no doubt about it (laughs) 
and uh, you know, talk about your nanny and the the, the the lies that she made up. There's no lies oh, here. Like, there's no oh. lies here. It's all truth. There is a definite thing where, like, that option was available to me, and I was like, I'm keeping my lies on stage, and that's I... how I'm going to do it. That there's not. She wouldn't be impressed with that necessarily. Well, the thing is, the stories are elaborate enough. The stories are interesting enough. You don't need to embellish them. There are the things as well. You know, when you're a kid, you're like, I don't know if I remember that or I just remember the story of something. So there are <laughs> things that I'm in where I'm like, I have no idea. I have no idea if that's a real thing or not. So, you know, it really is as much their fault as mine that I make things up for a living because making things up for a living is like a family business. You know, <laughs> like it's not, whether it's my dad inventing stuff or my nanny talking about, the, you know, the big snake in Egypt. It's like <laughs> making shit up for a living is exactly what we do. So. <laughs> well, thank God you do it. Thank God you do it. I guess my parting questions would be, I've got two for you. I don't know if it's a cliche question, but I'm just interested because we did speak so much about your childhood and growing up and how that's been yeah. so influential. Um, what would you say to your younger self? I don't know that I've got anything I would say to my younger self. You just What you want to think is that your younger self would admire where you're at. Your younger self would admire the fact that you go, I didn't give it up. I didn't go and become a grown up. So maybe that. Don't <laughs> grow up, it's a trap. Don't I say that all the time. Right. And the notion of being like, stick with this, this is going to work for you. Like, there's no rule that says you have to grow up. There's no rule that says that you have to give up on the things that are great fun to do. They will come at a cost. But if it's worth it to you, just don't listen when people who are less brave than you tell you that that's not an option. What they mean is it's not an option for them. They don't have any idea if it's an option for you. In that sense, then, are you somebody who has no or very little regrets? Um, yeah, I think, again, because I lost people very early, like, you know, the best pal that died in a car crash very early, you know, like, I lost people very early. I think there was, like, living like you'll have no regrets is sometimes tough to do. Like, living up to that is sometimes economically mental and mm -hmm. it takes you a, you know people don't tell you you know you're going to follow the dream of having stuff in theater what that means is you don't get other dreams you don't get to see your partner every night you don't get to live in a bigger house you don't get to have a car that's not falling but you know whatever it is yeah you know yeah. um but in terms of regrets again I lost my dad very early and I remember you know he's like younger than I am now talking to my mum about the fact that she was like I am a mess, she said, but we didn't have anything we needed to say. She's like, there is no unfinished business. There is no yeah. wish we'd had those conversations. So I am properly that person. I don't go to bed on a fight. I pick the phone up if something's gone sideways. If someone isn't right for me, I let them go. Like, I have done that stuff even if it's been hard. Mm -hmm. And some of it is to do with the thing of really believing that there is, there, you know, there is people who are, right for you and there's people who are at, who aren't and it doesn't matter how much it looks like it makes sense on paper your gut knows mm -hmm. you know so like I think living with regrets is about the times where you didn't listen to your gut or you couldn't hear your gut and I think that I have always paid attention to what my gut was saying because even through school and things let's say I would be looking at stuff and my gut was going this isn't fucking fair you're not getting this because you're a lassie this isn't right mm. and everyone was telling me that wasn't true <laughs> you know everybody was telling me there was good reasons for that and I remember getting through high school by going this is going to be one sentence in my autobiography 
like these five years, I'm just going to go. Sandy was bored out her box at the high at high school, and then I'm going to move on to the bits that matter. God, <laughs> you know. And what at what a pace you've been moving it ever since. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it is. I feel like I lost those years, and I, I'm making What's up time. Like making you up, know? Yeah. Like, oh, I feel yeah. like I am probably like the clock is a bit relentless because, like I say, I did you know I did get sidelined into being in production. I did get sidelined into being a programmer. I, you know, it took me a while to properly speak it out loud and name it in a way that suited me rather than everybody else. Mm. Which means that my practice, like the company started in 2002. And now that's an age away. Like that, the thing that's wild is people are like, oh my God, you've run a company for over 20 years. And I'm like, yes, still feels like I should have been running it for 30 though. Like I should have got out the gate... Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think anybody's in charge of what their internal clock is. So, yes, always in a hurry. Always asking forgiveness, not permission. Like, (laughs) you'll you'll die waiting for people to give you permission. And and Jake taught me that. I wasn't good at that. I I wanted, like you, I'm actually a rule follower. I want the rule book to be right. And he's the opposite, but he's like, rule book's never going to change. And that was when I, because he and I worked together when I was a programmer. And I was like, how are you getting away? Because he was doing some incredible stuff. And I was like, they, there's no way they know that you're doing all of this. And he was like, the deal is be very sincere when you're sorry after. He's like, just be really sincere when you're being, <laughs> mean it when you're saying it. Um, he said, but don't tell any of them any of it. We'll never sign off on it. And I, I genuinely took that to heart. You know, I've been doing that since I met him. I'm I'm totally subscribing to the rule book of Sandy Thompson, by the way. Like oh. I you need that needs to be written down somewhere. That needs to happen. That's phenomenal. I mean, there is a thing. I there's a I'm, Paula Varjak did a thing that was rules for a crumbling art economy. Rule for rules for artists mm-hmm. in a crumbling art economy. I, it was about how you made things happen when people didn't want to subsidize it and things like that. And her dad's an economist. So, like, it was about, you know, she had made a show about how she couldn't get her practice to pay for itself and stuff. And there is a thing where, I, you know, my rule book would just be like that. It would be bumper stickers. You know, that's a my mum thing. My mum used to give you these really valuable life advice things that could fit on the bumper sticker of a car, like confident people will never knowingly hurt you because they don't need you to be small. And if you get huffy and storm out a ta- storm out a party, you better be ready to walk up the road on your own. You know, like <laughs> there's just so she used to we used to call them her bumper stickers. If I have a tendency to, to put things on t-shirt slogans, I probably get it from her. Listen, you've got a whole business sitting there just waiting to happen. These bumper stickers, I would actually see if you ever you need to do that. That needs to be a thing. Um, oh, Sandy, make it happen. <laughs> I'm buying those stickers all day long. <laughs> oh, that honestly, I can't. I mean, my face is sore face smiling and heads like burling, burling way. Just <laughs> everything like the words of wisdom, the stories. What a cracking storyteller you are! Like to sit in your company for this time, and uh, this has been a total privilege. I'm, I'm no joking. This total sincerity. Like, thank you, thank you so much. No, um, at all. I mean, now all I'm aspiring to be is in the room and be. Anyway, shape or form, part of your mischief. That's that's well, what that's happened. <laughs> the invitation is always open. I mean, I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's like part of the thing that happens is that you see people who practice in ways that you like, and then making the. I mean, I invited somebody into the room. What was that? Just two months ago. I've been waiting ten years to get a shape. 
But I was like, great, finally, something that works. Like, do you know what I mean? But I think everybody has that address book, right? You know, yeah, yeah, just, totally. Because there's so many people in theatre that you meet and you're like, that would be awesome. Like that. This is why I made the podcast. This is so just I get to speak to these interesting so people. To to, I think it's a brilliant idea. And I think the thing that you do is bloody marvellous because there is like a consistency. I listen and, I, and I, I'm always impressed by the fact that the real person shows up. You know, and that's a skill that you have. It's like the real person. Well, that's show. kind. I just really admire that and I admire you and everything that you've, you stand for and everything that you've achieved and everything that you've gone after and everything that you've, like, all the doors you've kicked in and, like, the <laughs> mess that you've made and the mischief you've got up to. I love it. I love it. Um, I am a lover of words, Scots words yeah. particularly, and yes. a talk about bumper stickers. What would be your yes. um, Scots word or, or phrase that you would put on a bumper sticker that's your, oh, your favourite? Now, I have a favourite Scots word, and it maybe isn't as typical as you would think, but the word for fochen, which means to be tired and dispirited having tried your best and it not panned out. Oh and there is a thing in my family where it's like, are you upset? And you go, uh-huh. And they go, are you for fucking? And, it, and, and what it means is, do I have to come round with soup and a new pair of socks? Do you know, like, it's like the emergency word in my family. It's like the safe word in my family when everybody's like, no, we're going to sandals just for fucking just now. And, and <laughs> it's my favorite word and it often is only in dictionaries as the word dispirited but the reality is it means all of those that it means you gave it a really good go and it didn't pan out and because in the arts that happens all the time all of us give our hearts to things you go hell for leather or you work with a kid and then you go you see them go into the prison system despite what you did you know like all of those types of things especially if you are people who like you know you work with hope you work mm-hmm. with the reality of people. I, you know, I, I remember Jake and I writing our vows and me saying, do you want and hold on to me when I'm greeting when I didn't get the money? Because that's going to be a big part of this. Well, yeah, that's happening. <laughs> Just put it out there. And he was like, I don't think you need it in the vows. I think it's implied. I'm, I'm aware that there's not. But the amount of times that Jake has had to pick me up because I have done it, you know, I've done everything that's been asked of me and more. And it still hasn't paid off or it still hasn't landed or it still hasn't been funded. Like people don't talk about the toll that that takes on someone. So I love that what I have is this brilliant Scottish word where I'm allowed, I can alert my nearest and dearest to the fact that I can't get up just now because this specific thing happened. So that's my favourite Scottish word is for fochen. Well, you're getting (laughs) in the Hall of Fame with that one because in the whole 200 (laughs) episodes, nobody said that. We're having it, we're having it. Oh, and any time that I'm in that despair, any I will remember you yeah. and I'll say, Yeah, yeah. I think, I, I think it matters to be able to have like it's a more descriptive word. I spoke to somebody from Turkey. Turkish has a similar word that has that thing of like you tried really hard and it cost you a lot and it still mm. didn't happen and now you're in the bit after. But yeah, so that's a, yeah, I feel like we should all have flags with it. Just like, don't mess with me, I'm for fucking, you know. <laughs> the state of the world, I think we should all have I one. I mean, exactly, you know, like there is, there's just, you know, ever since like the Trump campaign trail, there's been things where I've, I've had to turn to Jake and I'm like, I'm actually just for fucking with the bloody world right now, you know, like, yeah. it, you know, but I think the thing that I like about it is I suppose it's very consistent because it's also a word about care let's say it's used in my family like a safe word it's used in my family like you're putting the balloon up and going I need looked after and, and, and the positive bit is the, the trying hard bit 
and that's yeah, you. Yeah, totally. Because you know, you know you'll be for talking for a while, but then you'll get up and do it again. And then you'll get up and do it because it's not always is... not no, going to go your way. Because There's the other alternative is sit, giving it up and being bored, and that's unbearable. Then you're so, back at high school, and it's no happening. Yeah, you know, you, can, happen. you know, for fucking is temporary. You know, that's what you're saying. Yes. For fucking is temporary. Well, I have loved this. <laughs> been a joy it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you and like i say it's not often that somebody's interviewed to be yourself you're usually interviewed because of a hat you've got so i notice with all the bra and the brave stuff that thing of let's say the real person shows up because it's not about the hat they wear and, a, and, I know, a, and that's a lot to give and um you know i'm cautious of that because some people would want to speak about mm-hmm. their childhood or their lives or their personal life yeah. that's fine but like you let us in today for sure and i loved it i loved it i just like i love for this kind of stuff so thank no, you I, mean, awesome. yeah, I feel like i've been to the theater <laughs> i've seen a really good show it was brilliant i'm affected by it i'm going to think about it all day long i'm going to talk to people about it and that's oh. what you've me. so thank you so much you're very welcome it's been an absolute joy thank you for asking me i hope you enjoyed today's episode of the bra and the brave a podcast about people and their passions Join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests. Bye for now.